Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Patrick Bet-David. He's an entrepreneur, founder of Valuetainment, a podcaster, and an author. Given that the world is in chaos, we would usually turn to our institutions and news organizations to make sense of what's happening. But trust in these institutions is at an all-time low. So what can we do about it? Expect to learn why it's actually important to have enemies. Patrick's thoughts on Ben Shapiro's new Snow White movie. What he thinks about Dana White's life philosophy. What it takes to actually impress people. Why immigrants have such a strong work ethic. Who really runs the world. Whether Tucker Carlson is going to break the internet. And much more. This episode was very fun. Flew all the way out to Fort Lauderdale in Florida to record with Patrick and... Uh, yeah, the guy is a real tour de force of capitalism and sort of lean-in, hard-work mentality. There's an awful lot to learn from this one. Don't forget that if you are new here or a long-time listener, you might be listening but not subscribed. And that is Trez Bad because you will miss episodes over the next couple of weeks when I have some of the biggest guests on the planet coming on Modern Wisdom. You don't want to do that. So navigate to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and press the subscribe button to support the show and make me very happy and not miss those episodes. I thank you. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Patrick Bet David. You say that you're useless to the world if you're not competing and you need enemies to drive you. Why? Um, I think most people who say they don't have enemies, they probably don't want to tell others they have the enemy or they don't want to disclose it. They're great poker players. I don't know a single person that doesn't have an enemy. Uh, everybody does. Uh, we're, we're very good at concealing our insecurities, our emotions, our fears, our wildest desires, our uh, uh, enemies or comments that rub us the wrong way, that wire us. Uh, we are very good actors, incredible actors, right? Now, if you have a long time of talking to somebody and you kind of watch them closely and the more they talk and then eventually you're going to find some leaks. You're like, oh, I just found one right there. Boom, I found one contradiction right there. Boom, I found one. And you're like, okay, interesting. We all have a, a little bit of that. But I do think that when you study the people that do something very big, I'm not talking about small, I'm talking really, really big. We're talking about some interesting people today. You and I have somebody we both respect a lot, Robert Greene, his books. I'm sure you love his books. I love his books, 33 Strategies of War. I couldn't put it down for two years straight. I listen to that book every day in my car, straight, every day. It was on repeat for two years straight. Why though? Because I innocently got into sales and I had a good time in sales and business after I got out of the military. And I wanted to be a bodybuilder and then I realized I'm 6'4", it's not gonna work for bodybuilding to win Mr. Olympia because everybody is 5'8", 5 5'9", 5 5'10", 5 5 maybe 5'11", Ronnie Coleman, but the 6'4 days are behind us. Even Lou Ferrigno didn't win at that height, Arnold did. And then when I got into sales, and everybody was a fan. Then I started competing, still a little bit of fan, but when I started the insurance company and then I started growing market share, really, then a lot of those people that were fans then started undermining. And I said, got it. This is how it works. You mm -hmm. can't be this naive. You can't be this innocent. Competition's out there. If you want to kind of go out there and take market share from others and you want to get bigger, 
you can't expect for people to sit there and like everything you're doing. That's when I realized you got to choose your enemies wisely. People want you to do well. They just don't want you to do better than that. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. There's this story of Churchill, and he's showing a young MP around the House of Lords in the UK. This is before World War II. You can imagine that they're wandering through these dusty hallways. Over there's the toilets, and over there's where we have a cigar, and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, they go into the chamber. They go into the, the House of Lords, right? Uh, the difference, actually, the distance between the two front benches is the same distance as a longsword held out at arm's length from both sides, which is a kind of a, a funny vestige of evidently what they were worried about in the Middle Ages, and they've just continued to update, but they've never changed the distance of the front benches. Anyway, got this young guy who's probably full of testosterone, and you know, he's finally he's here with Winston Churchill. You go in and this young MP starts gesticulating at the other side. He keeps referring to them as the enemy. Churchill turns to him and he says, that's the opposition, dear boy. The enemy's behind you. And I love that story. And the reason that I love that story is that it often reminds us that symbolically we believe that the biggest obstacle we have to overcome is out there. And many times the call is coming from inside of our own house. I think that the worst enemy that many people have is the voice that's inside of their own head. Mm -hmm. Now, this voice has probably maybe come mm -hmm. from the outside world, mm -hmm. but we've now internalized it. You know, we have become our own worst enemy in some regards. Yeah, and by the way, that's one of the enemies. That's one of the enemies, and there isn't one. It's the famous uh, uh, Matthew McConaughey speech that he's given. Hey, one guy asked him, who's the greatest actor in the world? And he says, hey, you know, I'll tell you. And then you're like, I want to meet the 35-year-old version of me. And hey, when I get to 35, you know, I want to end the 45. It's always looking forward to what that next better version of you is going to be. But at the end of the day, even Alexander, one of his famous quotes is, I have met the enemy, it is I, right? And although that is one element of an enemy, that's great. We need that. Uh, Michael had it, Brady had it, Kobe had it, but... There's a, there's a crazy psychologically, you can call it, you know, psycho competitor that they're constantly in the search of recruiting their next enemy. It's, it's like, you know, life is boring if I don't have my next target. You know, I'm, I'm almost, you know, uh, bad for myself if I don't have the next target, the next enemy. And if I choose it the right way, then I'm able to bring out a side of me I've never seen before. What's the function of an enemy? What is the function of an enemy? What is the function of uh, falling in love? Why do you need to fall in love? Why it, do you need to have a wife? It's enjoyable. It's pleasurable. Okay. It's fulfilling. But what does it do to you, though, when you're in love? You know, you know how they say when, when a person is in love and they go and test their brains and it's like somebody that's on drugs. You've seen this before. You probably read this before, right? Okay. So... But what's the risk of love? Heartbreak, losing years of maybe you love the wrong person, maybe they don't love you in return as much as you love them, maybe you're gonna give more than they're gonna give you, maybe a betrayal, maybe it's an act, maybe it's just good for the season, maybe they're gonna change their minds if they really find out what you're all, there's a lot of risk to love. But why do we love? You know, it's a very unique relationship. That risk is exhilarating, it's exciting, you know? maintaining it, it's a lot of work. It's not easy. It's why nowadays most people don't wanna get married. Nowadays there's a movement of, I don't wanna get involved to getting married. I don't wanna have kids, it's too risky. 
I want to live for myself. I don't want to have the responsibilities. I don't want to be heartbroken. Okay, great. I think, you know, one time a friend of mine and I, uh, Arash, were in Italy. And I rented this place in uh, uh, Tuscany, Italy. This is like 10 years ago. And we're staying there. And Arash and I, when we're together, we like to debate. And we debate about anything. It doesn't matter what the topic is, anything, okay? He's like the Middle Eastern Bradley Cooper, too good looking of a guy, one of those guys, kind of like you're a good looking guy. He's a good looking guy. So we have a three hour drive to Cinque Terre, okay? It's a beautiful place you go to, and it's a long drive to go to it. You know what we're debating about? Love. Here's what the question was Can you love somebody? You know, define love for me. He says, Love is a feeling, it's emotion, it's this. So great. I said, say you're in jail. Your wife is somewhere else. How does she know you love her? How do you show her love? Is love a verb? Is love a feeling? Is love a noun? We're having this conversation, right? And then you realize the risk of loving is worth it. I can't imagine living life without having that love. It introduces you to a person you've not met before. Man, a great enemy does that as well. A formidable enemy is going to introduce you to a person you've not seen before. By the way, it could be ugly, could be scary, could be, oh my God, who is this person? Why are you acting like this? Why are you thinking like this? So most of us, when we see, it's almost like that, um, the movie Venom. It's one of my son's favorite movie, right? The Venom comes in, it's like, there's, a, there's an ugly side to it if you lose control of it, right? And you become reckless, then you hurt people around you. Then you're actually not good for yourself. You're destroying your own life. That's why the key word is what? Choose your enemies wisely. It's not, it's not have an enemy, it's choose your enemies wisely. If I choose the right enemy and then I have this relationship with this enemy, sometimes it's a one-month enemy. It could be a one-week enemy. It could be a one-day enemy. It could be a lifelong enemy because it's yourself because that's a permanent enemy. And just like a love affair, there is an affair with this enemy. It's actually a beautiful thing. I love the idea of it bringing out a side of you that you didn't know, bringing out a person inside of you that you weren't aware existed. So I think there's a... um. There's definitely a function to get that into you. Come on, crack it in. There's definitely a function to uh to people looking to be well balanced. Oh, oh yeah. Delicious. Good. Wow. Fantastic. That's what I want to hear. Six months of taste testing, so I'm glad that it tastes good. <laughs> I had to fly to fly to Liverpool to do that. There is definitely a culture on the internet of people wanting to ameliorate all of their difficult and uncomfortable emotions to transmute them into something closer to equanimity, right? Balance, peace, sanity. Mm -hmm. And I've said this a lot. And I think that I'm quite averse to uh, conflict by nature. That's the way that I tend to operate. Uh, I, I often just bow out, opt for peace. Uh, and then two things changed. First off, I realized that I'm leaving an awful lot of motivation on the table okay. by not utilizing a very specific, very potent kind of fuel because I was aware that over a long enough time span, I think it can be toxic. I think that if you're fueled by hate and distaste and fear and scarcity for long enough, it becomes something that damages you more than it helps you win. But it's unbelievably potent, especially in times of war. And the second thing that happened was I became a little bit more of a target for people's ire and distaste. And that meant that the underdog 
loving support that everybody has for the person that's on the come up dissolved a little bit and started to evaporate because people don't mind you doing well. They just don't want you to do better than them. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're on the way up, everyone roots for you because you remind them of their dreams. And when you're at the top, everyone tries to tear you down because you remind them of what they gave up on. So those two things uh, changed. And I had a, a great conversation with Alex Hormozzi that really drove this home to me. He said, use what you have. And a lot of people have more pain than they do pleasure. Don't use it for too long. 10, 15, 20 years, like that's how you end up having a breakdown or some sort of dependency or addiction or vice. But it's potent, so use it. And I think that um, the insight of enemies can bring out a side of you that you are not aware, you weren't aware even existed, is kind of like alchemy, right? It's turning something that is both toxic and useless into something which is golden and your choice. Yes. And by the way, your eyes, okay, I'm looking at your eyes right now. Your eyes don't tell me a guy that is just doing this to just have fun, okay? Your eyes have a lot of fire in them, okay? A lot of fire in them. Uh, you, your eyes tell a story of maybe you have a crazy side, a uh, side inside of you, okay? Uh, a side that maybe you keep inside, okay? Where very few people maybe see, but that's why you're doing as well as you're doing. I walk into this place, I do a lot of podcasts, I walk into this place, you chose, I walk in, I'm like, Sam, where are we? He says, honestly, I don't know, but I think we're at the right place. We walk in and I see why you do what you do and the amount of time and resources and your team putting into hand selecting a different set. We don't do that. So what does that tell me? You're maniacal, you're detail oriented, you got, you're moving up right now on the podcast across the board, competing with everybody. You have a vision, maybe some of it we know, Probably all of it we don't know, okay? Some of it's kept even the smiles telling the story right now. You're a perfect example of this, right? Uh, um, if you and I sit down, we get the benefit. Like, I don't know if you read Elon Musk's recent book or not. Walter, Walter Isaacson, Isaacson, not yet. No, if, I've if, heard from every single person that's even glanced at the blurb that you need to read it. You need to read it. You're going to flip out. You're going to love it. You'll appreciate it for a guy that's wired like you. We get to judge Elon from the outside, mm. okay? Why would somebody... You sell a company for $180 million, you take $100 million, you put it in a solar or whatever, you take 70 in Tesla, you put 10 in you know, another company, vice versa, whatever the structure, no, you put 100 million in SpaceX, 70 million in, uh, in uh, Tesla and 10 million, you put it in solar. Then you're a billionaire. Then you wanna do what? You wanna go to the next thing? Then boring company? Then you got Twitter? What for? And then you read a story in the book about his father on how his father was? Are you kidding me? Oh, I mean, if you, some of the biggest people that we read about, we watch movies about, it's one of their two parents that did something to them. I'm, I'm with Tom Brady a month ago. We have him at the event. And the, the, the formula I see with a lot of people that do something big is three things. One, at one point in their lives, they, they experience unconditional love because you need it. It's fuel. You have to have it. Even if it's just from one person, okay? Un Conditional love means what? You screwed up, you went to jail, you got a DUI, you got kicked out of school, you got expelled. Everybody ousted you and said, you're a nobody. You're not gonna amount to anything. You're a loser, you're this. But that mother there always said, honey, I love you. You can do anything to lose this one person's love. One person, that's all you need. You don't need 50 of them, just one, unconditional love. Number two is you need somebody who brought 
unbelievable pain in your life that you loved. This is a person you and I loved, that they destroyed our heart. We couldn't do anything to gain love from this person, nothing. Perform, tell them we love them, go above and beyond, give them money, buy them gifts, give them incredible experiences, become buff, have a six-pack, drive a Ferrari, have a Lambo, own a penthouse, have a yacht, be best friends with the best athletes, with billionaires, no matter what you do. This person brought you so much pain, you can never win this person over. It is a battle your entire life try to win this person over. You're never going to do it. It's not going to happen, but you need that person as well. And you know what the last one is, obviously, choosing your enemies wisely. You take a person that has those three combinations. By the way, very rarely will they ever tell you the entire reason. Very rarely will they fully disclose everything. Some of them will take it to their grave with them. We will never know about it. But for someone to have the kind of a fire that goes years beyond 99% of people would have stopped, what's the reason for it? What else do you need? How many more accolades? How many more tens of millions of dollars? How many more cars? How many more houses? How many more top charts on podcasts? Number one, this. What's the reason for it? You know, it's a, uh, again, we're not talking about everybody. Most people will listen to this whole concept of choose your enemies wisely and they'll say, that's hate. What a miserable life. What a this, what a that. No, most people chose the wrong enemies. The enemies they've chosen is about being entitled, is about being victims, about feeling sorry for themselves, and it's destroyed them. It's stolen, stolen years away from their lives. So yeah, the, the way you're describing what you're saying, you know, you'll typically see a pattern with those three things of people uh, who do something big, they experience those three. And unfortunately, the, the reason why I like Musk's book is when you read it, you see the pattern with all three. Unconditional love, mom and Kimball, his brother. Unconditional pain, father, choosing his enemies wisely, industry, traditional, you know, guys who are like, this is the way we do with NASA, you know, governmental agencies, censorship, you know, establishment. He's just recruiting new enemies for himself every day. It's like, <laughs> bored. he needs more enemies and more enemies. But guess who's talking about him around the world? Everybody is. And 100 years from now, our kids, our grandkids will look back and say, Man, who was this Elon Musk guy? Unfortunately, we're not going to be around to talk about who it was, how, how, how we viewed him, but they're going to be watching plenty of documentaries and movies about a guy like that because he chose his enemies wisely. Feels to me, I've got in my mind the image of uh, Pac-Man, you know, when he is able to eat the ghosts yeah. and the ghosts, since were previously a threat to him, now become fuel. And uh, that to me is... Uh, I learned the three most common traits of elite performers, and it was a crippling sense of insufficiency, a superiority complex, mm -hmm. and maniacal focus. Yep. And I think that those three things map onto what you were just talking about there. Have you read this book? I've read the first half. Just so you know, that part from your podcast is in, in the book. You're in the book. Did you know this or no? No. You're in, your podcast is in the book. Those three the, things you just talked about. Okay. It's in the book. Hell yeah. Yeah, hell well, yeah. So those three things, right? I'm scared that I'm not enough. I believe that I can do more. Yep. I have the impulse control to be able to keep me focused and keep me moving forward. What would you say to the people that say, what you're describing sounds an awful lot like a competitor? Okay, yeah. What's the difference between a competitor and an enemy? Yeah, it's not a competitor because to me, uh, so, so in the last 20 some years, 
I have worked my tail off to figure out a way of writing a business plan that I can teach others how to write a business plan. So when you go buy books on business plans, it's all boring, technical. It's for a Fortune 500 company or somebody that wants to go raise capital. And it's so complex and dense. You will not think about a business planning book that you're going to walk away and say, here's how I can write a business plan that's simple, that I can look at it over and over and over again. Great. I'm good to go, right? There isn't something like that out there. This is supposed to be a business planning book that turned into an enemy's book. So when I'm talking to the CEO, the, the publisher of a portfolio, okay, uh, Adrian, and we're going back and forth. We had five-hour Zooms, five one-hour Zooms just on the title. And in many cases, we would sit there for 15 minutes. No one's talking. We're Who wanted thinking, what? Who won what? Who wanted what? So they wanted to figure out a title that was a straight up title. Like, you know, it's like, well, how to think and grow rich, you know, how to just, just a very much of a business Build planning a business, being the title. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Something like that. And then eventually I'm selling Adrian. I'm saying, but that's not what it is. This is much deeper than that. It has to do with enemies. And eventually on the fifth time of choosing the title, guess who finally says the title of the book has to be choose your enemies wisely? Adrian does from Portfolio. And I said, that's the title. You won. It was a battle of attrition. It, it was a battle of attrition. We put <laughs> a few hundred of them, right? But, but it, it's, a, it's an interesting concept when you're saying competition. Yep. To me, the 12 building blocks that I talk about in this book, you know, we have different uh, categories because one side of the building block has to do with emotion. The other side of the building block has to do with logic. And you read this when you were going through the book. So mm -hmm. on the emotion side, you know, it's going to move us. So for example, I, what skill sets do I need to learn? Well, I need to learn how to do a podcast, how to ask questions, how to do research. You told a Churchill story at the beginning with the sword, the size, mm. and hey, your enemies are not ahead of you. They're behind you. Okay. You have to go find that story. That's content, right? Okay. So that means you're constantly reading. Why is this guy so good at what he does with content? Okay. He's very detailed. Look at the lighting. Look how he does it. Look at his sets. He's intentional. He's not winging it. Everything you're doing, for the most part, 95% of it can be replicated by somebody else. But the 5% is your wit, is your interest, is the curiosity. Either the person has it or they don't have it, right? Okay. So yes, I can pick up those skills, but do I have your willpower? That's emotional. Yes, I can go study the competition. Let me see the top podcasters out there, what they're doing. What is the category for politics, for business, for sports, for comedy? Yes, but enemies bigger. Study competition all you want. But enemies are a completely different criteria that you're talking about. You can have all the money in the world. Fantastic. That's finances. That's money. You can go raise money. There's plenty of companies that raise money. Quibi a few years ago raised $2.3 billion. From who? All the big money guys. Everybody gave Quibi money. What happened to them? Katzenberg, Meg Whitman, everybody behind it went out of business. In 1962, 1962 was a super saving center, which is the year where Target came out, Walmart came out, and Costco came out. All the same year. 1962, okay? In 1962, when these companies came out, Kmart goes and raises a ton of money. Five years later, Kmart has 250 locations. Walmart has nine locations five years later. Kmart. On a leader's bulletin within five years, guess who's winning? Kmart's dominating. All logical, all numbers, spreadsheet, et cetera, et cetera. You couldn't tell me the founder of Kmart who he is. If I ask who's the founder of Kmart, you're not going to say Mr. Kmart, right? That doesn't make any sense. What happened to Kmart a few years ago? Kmart goes out of business. They're no longer around. You know how many employees Walmart has around the world? 2.3, 2.5 million employees. 
Do you know Walton, Sam Walton, one of the best books you can ever read is Made in America. It's 200 pages. He walks you through how he built uh, Walmart. Do you know what his poorest kid is worth today? Poorest kid is worth $50 billion today. He's got four of them. Can you imagine these guys at Thanksgiving? They're like, hey, Johnny, I noticed, man, you're only at 50 billion. Do I need to, you know, go fund me, you know, raise some money for you? <laughs> no, it's going to be all right. You're going to make, make it through. What's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is one is logic. The other one is emotion. Emotion brings out a different side. If it can be controlled madness, controlled emotion, it's going to go into a different gear that a normal person is not going to have. Let's talk competition. You're saying competitors, right? Okay, no problem. Um, in high school, you can see somebody who was the best basketball player, super competitive at that level. Say they're tall. They're 6'6". Six, six. They can jump 40 inches. They have a quick first you know, step. They're very athletic. In every way, they're the best athlete in the county, even in the state for that position. No problem. They go to college. They can compete. But maybe they're coming off the bench, averaging 7.2 points a game, three rebounds, two assists. No problem. They may not make it to the NBA. But let's just say he makes it to the NBA. Plays a year, two years, then he goes to Puerto Rico, then he goes to Spain, then he plays in Turkey, then he plays in China. Ten years later, never comes back to the NBA. He's out. Now he's an assistant coach in Puerto Rico or somewhere else. Then there's a guy that comes to the NBA. He competes. He's talented. He shows into work. He's a very good worker, stable guy, doesn't do the drugs, doesn't do the alcohol. He hooks up with a lot of girls, but he doesn't get in the way. He doesn't respect, you know, he respects his teammates' wives. He doesn't do anything. He plays for 15 years, makes $200 million. Good for him. Then you have the psycho competitor who counts the 55 kids ahead of him that were chosen as the best high school basketball player, and he's ranked number 56. And one by one by one, he targets every one of them until he takes them out. His name is Kobe Bryant. Then you have Michael Jordan in 1984, where the number one draft pick is Akeem Olajuwon. Fair, good, good uh, selection for the Rockets. Number two is Sam Bowie. I think Portland picks him up or Seattle picks him up. Number three is Michael Jordan. You pick me number three? Yes. What happens to Michael? See, these guys, Michael was never the highest paid guy in the NBA. The only time Michael was the highest paid guy in the NBA was the last year, he made $33, $30 million. Scottie Pippen made more money in the NBA than Michael Jordan ever made. Michael Jordan today is worth $3 billion. Scotty Pippen is not. What's the difference? It's a very different mindset. Scotty's a competitor, but he's not at Michael's level. By the way, it's very easy to criticize a guy like you who wants to compete. And maybe internally, you don't want to compete. You want to dominate. Maybe internally, you want to show everybody, no, I'm going to be number one. Let's just say within, because professionally, you want to do this. Totally cool. <sighs> but there's a lot of other competitors out there that have good podcasts and they're doing a good job. It's just a different mindset when you have that enemy. Mm. By the way, very rarely will those guys ever truly, again, reveal their top driver and the top enemy. Why? Because it's, it's, a, it's an element of insecurity. Yeah, it's a signal of low status. It is, it's, yeah. it's, and it's also, I don't wanna give the other person credit. Power. Yeah. I well, don't want to give that other person more power than the person thinks they have. You don't have power. Oh, because somebody may be like, oh, I'm your enemy. I yeah. control you. Exactly. Well, when it's a part of the come up story, yeah. it's romantic, right? It's, it's, uh, it's grassroots. It's what's keeping you going, look at, look at how I was mistreated by my first high school coach. They didn't see the time. I'm going to prove it to them. That's 
a beautiful origin story, age 20. Age 45, that just sounds like someone who can't get the chip off his shoulder. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's it's interesting how the tools that got you here aren't the ones that will get you there and how the strategy, this is again one of the reasons why continuing to rely on resentment and bitterness and the chip on your shoulder and enemies for too long becomes a very toxic fuel. And it's also, importantly, optics are very, very important to signal of low status. Okay, you brought, I don't disagree, but you brought up a story of Churchill, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, the world, is weeks away from all speaking German, okay? If we lose the war, mm. and the guy wins, no problem. Chamberlain cannot hold it together. And the story about how the only way Churchill said he was gonna come back is for Chamberlain to come and beg him. <laughs> the only way. Does it sound like something Churchill would do, by the way? Absolutely. Yeah. Churchill sat there and said, okay, he has to come and ask me because Chamberlain sent other people. He said, no, 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 no. Only one person has to come look at me face to face and say, you can do a job I can't do. Come back and help us. Think about, think about that. Now, visualize that scene. We can see it in a movie or we can read in a book. And by the way, say 50% of it is true. Mm -hmm. The other 50% is true, right? The other 50% is a lie and it's like build up mythical over generations, yeah. right? I believe that Churchill would want to hear it from a Chamberlain. Have you heard of Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare? No. So this is a phenomenal book that everybody can go and read. Uh, before the Second World War, it was considered ungentlemanly to use guerrilla-style tactics. And in fact, one of the uh, British politicians said something to the effect of, if this is what it takes to win the war, I am prepared to lose. They were, th the Brits saw anything shy of gentlemanly conduct in war is a loss, even if it resulted in a win. And Churchill came in and changed that. He was the one that changed that culture. So he puts together this crack squad of eccentric weirdos. One guy invents the limpet mine, right, which you can descend to depth and then it'll attach using magnets and it'll blow things up. Another group uh, develop what is the uh, predecessor to the SAS. Another group are working on disguises and, and guerrilla tactics yep. to disrupt in, in infrastructure as the German advance is trying to move forward. Uh, so yeah, Churchill was prepared to play dirty. But, you know, you look at the tactics that were used, they only came about because of one man who legitimated it and, and he said, we will do whatever it takes to win. Now, here's the thing. When you th hear a story like that, um, somebody may say, well, you know, what a, what a, what a cold-blooded bastard. Oh, my God. No wonder people hate him. No wonder he is who he is, where many presidents moved the bust of Churchill in the White House away and said, take this out so I don't represent what he represents. Mm. Everybody acts all hard, right? Mm. We can hate a Churchill during peacetime, but during wartime, you, you beg for a Churchill to rise up. Uh, wartime leaders like Churchill, you only appreciate during wartime. There's a, a really interesting insight from evolutionary psychology here. There's two types of leadership. One is from dominance and the other is from prestige, right? One is uh, more authoritarian, it's tyrannical, it's very aggressive. The other is uh, more altruistic. It, it, it's uh, the, the rise to power is denoted it's spread through the group. Everybody chooses together that this is someone who we all believe has the skills. And 
the dominance is not the same. And there are specific times when you want dominance and when you want prestige. I agree. And in times yeah. of conflict, you want dominance. Sure. Sure, you could say it in business, it's startup versus when it's more established, right? Precisely, precisely. But here's also the thing, like the, the part where you gotta give a lot of credit to Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs had a startup mentality and then he took that to the company and then he hires, you know, uh, his uh, uh, Scully that comes in from Pepsi and he mm. says, you wanna sell sugar, can, you know, water for the rest of your life or you wanna change the world? He brings him in. Then he ends up being the reason to fire Jobs. Jobs leaves, goes, builds Pixar, sells it to Disney, most of his wealth is tied to Disney, not at Apple. Then he comes back and he realizes that style of leading is not gonna work to take the company to the next level. When he comes back to Apple, the first phone call he says, he says, the idea of thinking Microsoft is the enemy is behind us. We can't think like that anymore. This is what Steve Jobs says. And he goes to Microsoft and he gets $300 million from Microsoft to invest into Apple. And these guys hated each other. Microsoft came out in 76, Apple came out in 77, a year apart. And everybody was always comparing the two together. Bill Gates ended up being much richer than Steve Jobs, but Steve Jobs was admired way more than Bill Gates. So what does this mean? The individual has to evolve. Like you have to also recreate yourself as you're going through this. The same enemy that drives you when you're 22 years old should not be driving you at 32 years old or else you haven't matured. You should also outmature that enemy. And then 32, something else should be driving you, then 42, then 58, then 63, then 75. But you are going to have those love affair with those enemies. That's a love affair. You had an affair with this enemy over an eight-year span, over a 13-year span, over a six-year span, over a six-month span. But, you know, there is truth in the idea of you still being driven by that enemy 18 years after you beat that enemy, 13 years after you beat that enemy. Someone who I think is particularly good at creating enemies from modern pop culture and our industry is Ben Shapiro. Okay. What do you think about what he's doing at Daily Wire from an enemy perspective and, and generally? You're talking about recently with his feud with Tucker Carlson or period, generally? Everything overall. Um, I think Tucker's a true believer. I think Tucker is not somebody that, if he's doing it intentionally to get under your skin, let's say that's 20%. Let's say it's 10% because he's witty and he's smart and he's sharp. Tucker let's, or Ben? I'm sorry, Ben, ben Shapiro is who yep. you're talking about, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yep. Let's say Ben is doing that 10 or 20% intentionally to get under your skin, okay? But this guy at a young age wanted to be Supreme Court, just, you know, he's been wanting to be that for a long time. This is not a regular guy. I think at 12 or 13 years old, he performed in front of a couple thousand people. His level of intelligence of how early on he got a degree, went to college, 15, 16 years old, did all the stuff that he did. So he's a 100% true believer. Does he have an element that he can talk to somebody and say, I can murder you in a debate right now if you really want to go there. Yes, he has that element as well. Yeah. Does he have a side of him that's a, maybe a bully type a little bit? Sure. Well, don't forget, during school, he was very heavily bullied himself. Well, very heavily bullied. But that's what happens typically to people like him. But that may be the number one driver that he's continuing because he wants for the rest of his life for those bullies to talk about that Ben Shapiro used to be a classmate. What makes him go at the pace that he goes? You think it's just all these other guys that we see? There's no way. You think he would ever tell us? You think his own family knows that? Highly doubt it. It's to himself, many of these people that he has in his life. Anybody that goes at that pace, like Tucker Carlson today, I don't know if you saw the approval he got 
I think they got $150 million today from some organization. Who did? Tucker's Carlson. organization. Yeah. So finally today, the word is out that he raised money. It's, it's, a hundred, it's a big amount of money that he finally raised today. Who's his enemy? He's got a very easy enemy. He's got Fox News, former employer as an enemy. He's got a lot of political people as an enemy, people who silence him as an enemy. You know how many enemies Tucker's got? You think Tucker needs another $300 million that he has in a bank account? I highly doubt so. He's doing it for a complete different reason because he wants to give the middle finger to five, 10, 15 different people in his life. You just sense it with Tucker. And by the way, you know what's wild right now? Ben Shapiro went after Tucker this week. What happened? Because of uh, uh, Israel, Tucker's position where he says we should focus on 100,000 uh, uh, people in America that are dying from fentanyl, not focused on what's going on in Israel and Gaza. And Ben Shapiro says, you know, we can chew gum and walk at the same time, specifically from the moral standpoint. We can handle two different moral issues, but, you know, they're going back and forth. Whether it's a seasonal thing or not, that's a completely different, you know, competition that we're talking about. But I suppose, uh, how would you say, enemies of convenience are sometimes good for optics. You know, what have we just seen? Dylan Dennis, Logan Paul, yeah. KSI, Tommy Fury. Yeah. Jake Paul, Tommy Fury, Logan Paul, uh, uh, Jake Paul, and uh, who's the jiu-jitsu guy? Stockton Slaps. Diaz. Thank you, Nate Diaz. Love that guy. Enemies of convenience. Yeah. You know, like nothing gets people's tongues wagging more than you creating a little bit of a feud on the internet. Do you see, uh, they announced yesterday, speaking of feuds and speaking of Disney, that the Daily Wire are going to do their own version of Snow White with Brett that. Cooper starring yeah. as Snow White. I saw that. I saw that. I mean, that to me is, you know, largely a uh, declarative statement of culture war on what's happening with children, with children's movies. You know, it's synthesizing down all of the little tangential issues that have been included. Is it anything to do with the push toward the sort of books that are in school? Is it us, you know, denying this, uh, Rachel Ziegler, Ziegler throwing Snow White under the bus? Like, she doesn't have a Prince Charming. She has a stalker. We don't need that. What do you think about that? I think that it is a very dangerous lesson to teach young girls that boys that show interest in them are dangerous and to be avoided. I think it makes for a generation of fragile, narcissistic, fearful young girls that I wouldn't want as a daughter and that I don't want as a mother. You know what a perfect example that is? The movement of feminism is the ultimate example of not choosing your enemies wisely. You chose men as being the enemy. 40 years later, 50 years later, you're 65 years old, single, not married, no kids, you're living in an apartment or a condo with a dog or a cat, that that's all you ever talk about, and you're lonely, and you're sitting there saying, I was wrong. Men are not the enemy. But guess what? That movement stole 50 years of your life. You know how painful that is? What she's doing right now with the messaging she's given and then getting out there and saying, well, I don't want to be able to have to do this. No, you know, what the, it's not necessarily going to be that way nowadays. You know, women don't need that anymore. It's a completely different era right now we're talking about. And to do this at a hundred year anniversary of Disney? Yeah. Really? With what Walt and many of us, I remember living in Iran watching Disney cartoons translated in Farsi, literally in Farsi. It's it's very weird when you watch it in Farsi because the language is a rough language. You know, you get, you watch Pinocchio <laughs> in Farsi. It, it it's not as appealing, right? But we grew up with this stuff. You know, we grew up with watching these cartoons. To see that taking place is, uh, if you ask me, it's absolutely pathetic. But you're seeing how many back to back to back flops Disney has right now. Yeah, 
and it's not a good look. Um, by the way, the buyers who want to buy Disney, they're loving this. Apple's one of the most qualified buyers. They, they hope Disney makes five more flops. Apple's sitting there saying, make five more flops. Iger, please. By the way, have you read The Right of a Lifetime by Bob Iger? Okay, another interesting guy. What he did with his 38 career at ABC. Obviously, he's been there a lot longer, but when you read the book, the first 38 run, to be one of the best power brokers, then to finish your career up the way you're doing right now, very, very bad way of finishing it up. He's not an idiot, right? You don't have the excuse of not knowing. He is for sure. What a point you just made. He is 100% not an idiot. This guy was about to run for president. Bob Iger was going to, he was one of the guys that everybody was trying to get to run for president. Him and Oprah, they were supposed to be this. Literally, this was the conversation. So he also ended up choosing the wrong enemies and the wrong allies, not realizing your best allies are parents. You're losing parents who have been watching this for years. You're losing the people that this is a legacy product. It's another example of a complete screw up that's going to come at a discount for somebody else like Apple. Eventually. Well, I mean, look at, in, to go back to Ben and what Jeremy are doing over the Daily Wire, uh, Hershey's do a campaign that they don't like. Within five days, they've released their own chocolate bar. Uh, that shaving company does something they don't like. Within 24 hours, maybe, they yeah. filmed a video with a McLaren for Jeremy's razors. They don't like the way that's... Fantastic commercial, by the way. Well done. Jeremy's yeah. got Jeremy's got skills. I, rem I listened to him and uh, Shapiro talking about the fact that originally Jeremy was the talent and Ben was the money man and the 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 uh, data guy behind the scenes. Do you know Zach Levi? I think his name is Zach Levi, the actor who played the... Uh, what is the movie? The, 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 the superhero for kid movies. What is the guy's name? Ben Anyways, 10. What is it? Ben 10. No, no, it's a, it's a recent about. movie. You're the one with like... Yeah. Four kids. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me, I've seen this movie a couple times. <laughs> he he played Kurt Warner, a recent movie that came out, The American Underdog. He played Kurt Warner. Him and Jeremy used to have a production company apparently 10, 15 years ago. Mm. And Zach ended up being a big time actor in Hollywood, doing very good for himself. And uh, by the way, Jeremy is another great example of a guy that's got enemies. Just look at his eyes. When you talk, when you hear Jeremy speak, you see the fire. He's built for enemies. He's yeah. got enemies, and he wants to take those enemies out. But that's why I thought the Daily Wire was an illustrative example, because they are, as far as I can see, largely a company built on identifying enemies. You know, they're very much in opposition to ideas that they don't like, to movements they don't like, to people that they don't like. And uh, yeah, man, I mean, it's you have to be built for that. You really, really do need to be built for it. And it certainly seems to me that what Ben and what Jeremy are doing over there is purpose-built to be the anti this, the anti that, and a lot of the time it's new movements that they don't just they don't agree with. The market's going to prove if the concept is going to work or not, and if it can sustain. Because if it's a built to sell concept, they're going to be they're going to succeed. Mm -hmm. But can somebody else come and pick up that concept and continue with that with the same level of fire? It's going to take a couple of decades to figure that part but out. It's interesting to think, you know, from, from our side, when you see those Rachel Ziegler interviews and she's saying courting is stalking, um, a girl doesn't need to be saved by a prince. You know, she's busy thinking about how she can fulfill her own dreams and becoming the woman that she always knew right, that she could, right. so on and so forth. You think a lot of people are, is that really, the, you know, the highest manifestation? Is that real self-actualization for young women nowadays, that's the question they ask. And you're totally right that, look, ultimately, the market will choose. 
There's no question about it. The market will choose. The market is brutal. You know, you know what's the great thing but about it? It's always the, right. It's always right. You know, you can you can say, well, let me tell you, I'm the best bodybuilder in the world. Yeah, okay. Look at your calves. Yeah, good luck to you. Go put those uh, little skimpy, you know, uh, shorts on and see what your, you know, legs look like. No, you're not as good as you think you are. You're full of it. Yeah. Market is brutal. Podcast, business, concepts, investments, drinks, you know, alcohol, books you write. When we first wrote, uh, uh, when I first wrote Your Next Five Moves, and we launched it August of 2020, this is during the peak of COVID, my publisher, Simon & Schuster, asked and said, so, so how do you think the book's going to do? How are you going to judge the book? Me and Greg Dinkin are talking. I said, if the book is doing well three years from now, it was a good book. You can have a great marketing campaign. The book does well the first 30, 60, 90 days. But is the book selling three years later? If it is, that's a great book because the market will tell you that. Yeah, very interesting to think about how optics and there are ways to game the system. And I think people are very, they're hyper aware of this. They understand that there are people who have managed to use tactics and hacks to get themselves into a position that they maybe didn't quite deserve, that the legitimacy of the product, the book, or whatever it is, the person who ha maybe uh, when Meghan Markle's autobiography comes out, perhaps people would accuse her of doing something like this, right? It's not to do with the actual product, it's to do with the positioning. And sometimes that does work. But ultimately, form is temporary and class is permanent. Naval's got this great quote where he says, um, karma is just people repeating their beliefs, actions, and behaviors until they finally get what they deserve. You just roll the dice. You keep rolling the dice, right? Every single time, every single thing you do, the way that you interact with the Uber driver, the way that you pay or don't pay the bill or invoice that you've got, every tiny little thing each time is an opportunity for your true nature to come mm. out. And people just keep on rolling the dice. Keep on rolling the dice. And then every so often, someone hits double one and you go, oh, there we go. But it's temporary. You can't do it permanently. Meghan Merkel, whether her motives are really because she loves the prince and it's like Harry, she's in love with him, or she's using the power to bully and get what she wants out of it. The market is brutal. Look what happened to Amber Heard. For how many years did everybody think, you know, Johnny Depp was a bad guy? For how many years? Oh, Johnny Depp was an abusive, you know, relationship, all this stuff. And then they start showing the clips, the videos. And Johnny's comfortable with it being public. And all of a sudden, 180. The world is like, what an asshole she is. Not him. I love Johnny. The next thing you know, the love affair was like, how many more men are going through like Johnny is? And then how many women said she ruined it for women who were actually abused? Correct. So, yeah, for the longest time, oh my God, crying. It's such a so difficult time when he was so, when he hit me. We fell for it, but we will only fall for it temporarily, not permanently. The market will reveal eventually, what, hopefully. Yeah, I, again, man, form is temporary, class is permanent, and people will ultimately get what they deserve. Uh, when it comes to the courting is stalking culture that we have at the moment, you've got a daughter, you've got young sons. You also spend some time under valuetainment talking about intersexual dynamics and what's going on between the sexes. What do you make of the current dating scene for men and women and why do you think it's being demonized in some ways from what perspective from i think that there is an anti-dating culture at the moment okay i think that men and women are being encouraged to be treated as equals uh, sorry as adversaries not as equals right right um 
I think it's transactional today. I think it's easy today. I think the swipe right community is, it's Friday night, 11 o'clock, let me swipe right, I'm gonna use 20, someone's gonna get back to me. If they swipe right and they, so and typically I would go after an eight and a half, nine, but it's Friday night, I'm gonna go do a six and a half, seven, no one's gonna know. I'm gonna invite her back to my place. She knows if she's on Tinder, I'm not on Bumble, whatever these dating apps are. And so it's transactional, strategic, no one's gonna know. And literally, not a lot of people are gonna know. You can really run through 20, 40, 50, 100 nowadays, and it's not a big deal. Okay, so what does that do? Whatever is too easy to come, you devalue it. You don't value it that highly. You know, my era, you had to court, you had to prospect, you had to have scripts, you had to build relationship, you had to follow up. We didn't have these types of things to do. We had MySpace. The last time I was single, there was MySpace, <laughs> okay? I DM'd uh, my wife on MySpace. My wife and I knew each other for five and a half years. Eventually, we're in Palm Springs for the first time. She's single, I'm single ever. For five and a half years, we're both single. And, you know, we go on a date. First date, P.F. Chang's December 29 of 2007. <laughs> Used this when PF Chang used to be good when they had their uh, their their noodle soup. They don't have it anymore. It used to be they took that away. Phenomenal item on the menu. I'm convinced they they fell apart after that. <laughs> so, anyways, we go to uh, PF Chang's. By the way, if you're watching, bring it back. It was actually a very good item on the menu. So we go on a date. There's magic. She's smiling. I'm smiling. You know the smile. That's kind of like I'm happy to see you. And then it's midnight where the last people left at PF Chang's. You know, waiter comes up to me, and he says, "What's going on?" I said, you know, my wife wants to file a divorce. She doesn't want to be with me anymore. So your wife, why? Yeah, I come from a different religious background and her family's convinced we got to split up. And he has no clue. We're not married. We're just on our first date. He sits down for 15 minutes convincing her to stay with me. If you love him, stay with him. It was a beautiful, you know, scene that we have. We go in the car. She goes home. The next day I take her. We go do stairs in Santa Monica. We go to church. We go to Earth Cafe in Santa Monica. Then we go to Borders. I buy her book on our second date called 101 Questions to Ask Before You Get Engaged on Our Second Date by Norman Wright. She's like, what's this? I said, I'm not looking for a girlfriend. I'm looking for a wife. I'm 28 at the time. Uh, I said, I know exactly what I want. I've already done this exercise with three other girls. If you want to go through it, great. You need to answer the questions. Let's meet up when you're ready and let's go through it. Week later, six hours at her place, one by one by one, each question we go through. I said, this is somebody I can date. And by the way, it's ugly because you got to talk about everything in a book. So today, that's not it anymore. Today, it's too risky. Today, it's you don't have access to that anymore. Today, percentages are coming out where marriages from dating sites have the least chance of working out versus marriages where you meet somebody through referral where you say, Pat, I've known Mary for seven years. I think you and her should talk. Now, I don't know what's going to happen. Let me set you guys up. Let's take our girls and do a double day. Cool. Hey, I kind of like her. This is good. But you're telling me seven years. I've only seen her be with one guy, Larry, five years. He was an asshole. Then she's been with this other guy two years, but she's single now. Now I have some kind of a history I'm dealing with, right? So it is a different climate. Now with kids, it's a different story on how you raise them. Uh, my uh, uh, 10-year-old son, he's he's been... He's had a girlfriend since he was five years old, literally at a birthday party at five years old. He's making out with this other girl at this Damon Bus Damon Busters. I'm like, babe, what is going on? His mom is asking me, you know, our kids are kissing. I said, well, I got a son. You got a daughter. You may want to stop your daughter, but I'm not going to stop my son. And so she's like, well, guys, guys, no, stop, stop. They don't even know what's going on. So there's, you need to have the conversation with kids early today. 
uh, I remember having a conversation with my boys when they were six and five in the shower. And I said, okay, we need to have this conversation together. What's that? Okay, stand up. That's your dangling. That's his dangling. This is my dangling. Only you get to play with your dangling. One day, you're going to find a girl that's going to play with your dangling. Till then, God gave you that dangling for only you to play with your dangling. Now, you got to see how they're looking at me, by the way. They're looking at me like this. And my wife leaves quickly. She's like, babe, this is on Casa, babe, you can leave. So we have that conversation. I think you need to have the conversation today because most parents are Middle Eastern. They don't have those types of conversations. No one's talking about sex and condoms and all this kind of stuff. You need to start early. But the dating scene today, very, very different than what it was when I was single. Uh, I, if I wanted to go date today and find a wife, my approach would be very different than what most people are doing today. Very different. You say to be impressed by the right things, and you just suggested it that as well. What are the right things? What should people be impressed by? In what area? In relationship? No, in life. In life. What is it that people are miscellaneously being impressed by that okay. they shouldn't be? So your guy, Chase, right? Wherever Chase is, okay, so right there. And then uh, your, uh, where's- uh, Dean. Uh, Dean, where's Dean? Dean is in the back. Yeah. Okay. You're telling me about Dean and what Dean does. He's been with you two years, three years. What, Six you said 2,500 episodes and how many? Uh, uh, 700 episodes, two and a half thousand videos. 2,500 videos, yeah. 700 episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. What does that say about you? A lot. Okay. If somebody works with you for six years, what are they going to learn about you? Your temper, your expectation. Hey, boys, are we ready? This is all standard and expectation, uh, expectation that you have. That is a reflection of he likes working with you. Why does he like working with you? I don't know, but you do something right for him to want to work with you. And then you told me what you're doing with him, mm -hmm. structure, that's private stuff that you told me. So you watch people, you watch values, principles, you watch how they treat people, you watch how people treat them, you watch how people respond to them, you watch how they are with powerful people, you watch how they are with regular, average, day-to-day -day people. You, you look for that. Today, it's not the cars, the, the Lambos, the Ferraris, the houses, all that stuff. By the way, I'm a capitalist, and I love all that stuff, but I like that stuff because different reasons. I enjoy the game. I'm a kid. Uh, uh, f I'm turning 45 tomorrow. I'm 44 today for the last day. Tomorrow, I'll be 45. But there's an element of childlike stuff that brings out the 14-year-old kid. When I look at a baseball card, I'm a kid when I look at a baseball card. The average mm -hmm. person's like, who cares about baseball cards? That's a different element. But the relationships, the way tr they treat people, values and principles, what they value, you look for those types of things. And eventually enough will be revealed the more you pay attention. That's one of the byproducts I think that is dangerous sometimes of people who play the game, that they get captured by the game and they forget that it is a game and they see the game as reality. They don't realize that there is something which is supposed to be deeper, which is hidden below the surface. So I did Rogan's show last year uh, and I listened back to the episode. He said something on it that I really wanted to dig into. And he listened back, I, I listened back and, and pulled this, this really, really powerful insight for me. It was one of the most powerful things I learned last year. And he said, just because something is hard to obtain does not mean that it is valuable. Just because something is hard to obtain doesn't mean it's valuable. Correct. Yeah. Just because it's difficult to get doesn't mean that it's valuable. Look at the car he's driving. Look at the watch he's wearing. Look at the girl he's with. 
these things were hard to obtain, so you presumed that they were valuable, but you didn't realize that what's genuinely valuable are friendships and relationships mm -hmm. and a comfort and a confidence in yourself and peace of mind and sanity and being able to positively impact the people around you. So it got me thinking. I've been really sort of reflecting on this over the last year. Uh, and I did some research into the history of the pineapple. So uh, 1492, Christopher Columbus lands on the island of Guadalupe. And for the first time ever, a Westerner sees a pineapple, right? And you look at it and it's kind of a royal fruit. It's got this stupid crown on its head. And he writes in his journal, he describes the taste of a pineapple. If you've never had a pineapple before, it'd blow your head off. You know, if you haven't got processed food. Oh, I remember the first time I had a pineapple. So sweet. Yes. It's insane. Of course. Anyway, they take a shipload literally back to uh, the Prince of Spain, uh, Prince Aragon II, take this entire shipload back. One of them makes it that isn't rotten. And prince is allowed to eat it. And again, it almost gets this sort of mythical quality to it, the pineapple. Very quickly, the British, quite rightly so, they, uh, they start to see it as this symbol of opulence, right? They see it as this symbol of wealth. So they would parade pineapples around at dinner on a platter, and they would use them over and over and over again. You could rent a pineapple right, for the evening. This is the sort of house in which you might be able to see a pineapple, right? castles had pineapple uh, statues on the top of them. There would be uh, fountains with pineapples at the front of someone's estate. All of this occurred because of the scarcity of a pineapple. It was 8,000 pounds to get one pineapple. Wow. Right? That was the equivalent back then. 8,000 pounds. It was a symbol of, of privilege and opulence and wealth. And what it meant was that people really looked up to this one object. Then the French, a couple of hundred years later, they invent greenhouses. And that allows us to grow tropical fruits at higher climates, higher uh, uh, latitudes. Price drops. And guess what? No one starts parading the pineapple around anymore. The scarcity of it was largely determining the value of it. And that story and what I called Rogan's value difficulty conflation, just because something is hard to obtain does not mean that it is valuable. Now, I would argue that a pineapple is valuable no matter how hard or difficult. <laughs> it's like a dialed fruit, no matter yeah. how good or how difficult it is to get a hold of. But I really love that insight because I think that it shows how non-valuable but difficult to obtain things get slipped into our desires. I see that particular expensive possession that intrinsically I don't actually care about. Maybe I've never been a watch guy. Maybe I've never been a shoes guy. Maybe I've never been a car guy. But I want it. I want it because it's hard to get. Okay, well, what if there is a quicker route toward fulfillment? What if there is a more direct path? Because there are some people out there for whom keeping up with the Joneses and materialism is an inbuilt part of their life. But I can say as someone that doesn't have that bone in my body particularly, that for me, material possessions, they don't make a massive difference to my quality of life. I like nice things. I like to fly business. I like, you know, I like a nice house and blah, blah, blah. But there's people who are tuned into that, right? Maybe it was their upbringing, their genetic predisposition, whatever, whatever, whatever. But I think that people should be very cautious. Why is it that I'm chasing this thing? Am I chasing this thing because it's something which is valuable? Or am I chasing it simply because it's something that's difficult to get? Yeah, that's a, by the way, very good story. And a great quote, I remember in Iran, pineapple is ananas. That's how we say it, mm -hmm. we say ananas. Mm -hmm. And anybody in Iran who had pineapple, you were rich. Two things, pineapple and banana. In Iran. Okay. Only rich people have pineapple. Two and, good uh, fruits. Yeah, two good fruits. And then I go to Germany, and bananas are everywhere. But the first time I had pineapple, I had it in the States. I couldn't believe 
we were having pineapple. I thought we were rich when we had pineapple. I said, Mom, are we finally we rich made here? It. <laughs> we made it. We retired on we a pineapple. We retired. Yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. on and on. And I remember I was in ninth grade, first time ever. We went and ate at Sizzler's. I thought we had made it. I'm like, guys, you will not believe what restaurant. I don't know if you know Sizzler's, but Sizzler's in the U.S. is not a fancy restaurant. I thought we made it because we ate at Sizzler's. Yeah, you know, it's a, I used to think, um, and, you know, this whole concept of people who are too much about fancy things. It's kind of like, well, look at this guy. All he cares about is money. All he cares about is fancy things. All he cares about is these cars and life with the rich and famous and all this other stuff. E eventually, I realized not everybody is driven by the same thing. All I care about, that's something that drives you, okay? My oldest son could care less. You know what he wants for a car? His favorite car? A Jeep. That's his dream car. My daughter says, I want a white Ferrari. Okay. And I said, who do you think is going to buy that for you? Well, daddy, you're going to buy. I said, I'm not buying you a white Ferrari. You're going to buy yourself a white Ferrari. Dylan wants a completely different car. My oldest son, you know what? You know what is absolutely a great day for him? Outside, in the dirt, playing with lizards, catching animals, playing with dogs and cats. That's an incredible day. By the way, he's been locked down since eight months, nine months. My youngest son, 10 years old, First time I take him to my barber to get a haircut, and one of the girls at this place, they give uh, massages at the end when you get the haircut. My oldest son says, don't touch my back. Don't, don't touch me. He would go like this. He's like, no, no, dad, I don't tell her not to touch me, right? But my 10-year-old son, it was five at the time. She's like, can you also massage me over here? Oh, he likes the finer things in life. He likes the finer things in life, right? Oh. My oldest son loves dogs. He loves animals. My youngest son, don't get on my bed. Get off my bed. My oldest son wants a dog right next to him. Mm. The youngest son doesn't want any of the dogs next to him. Mm. And his dad loves dogs. I love animals, right? So I'm not, I'm not you know, I think uh, Joe specializes in doing the heart. If there's anybody that specializes in doing the heart, it's Joe. You mm. kidding me? Like Joe's uh, uh, enamored by doing the heart. But also Joe's learned to be so self-aware of himself, to know what he likes. I said, Joe, what do you think about sports? Is uh, I know nothing about sports. I don't watch sports. The only thing I watch is UFC. Joe, now that you're getting all these eyeballs, what's your vision? What if we can do this, Pat? The only thing I want to do is I just want to do podcasts. Yeah. I want to go hunt. I want to be my family. I want to do UFC. And this is all I want to do. The level of clarity he has of where he's at, props to him. Now, Dana White, slightly different. Dana's now worth a few hundred. Say so he's worth a half a billion dollars today. Why is he still driving? Why is he still pushing? Why is he still competing? Why is he still wanting to be number one? Who's his enemy? He drives around in nice cars, likes to go to the casino, likes to be around with people, having fun late night. Two different dynamics, two different personalities. Look at the organization they built with you. Well, I mean, thinking of someone who chooses their enemies tactically, Dana is not someone who's shy of a fight. He loves it. You know, if you were to think of a C-suite level fighter, Dana White is is pretty well. Cream of the crop. Yeah, you've yeah. you've spent a good bit of time sort of uh, orbiting that that whole crew of people. What have you learned from your uh, insights about the UFC and and sort of what that says about Dana? Oh, listen, what I'm about to say about Dana is some people are not going to like it, but I'm I'm going to say it anyways. UFC is what UFC is because of Dana White. You can sit there and talk about all these fighters and. Yeah, but you know, if it wasn't for this guy, if it wasn't for that guy, if it wasn't for what this person did and that, totally get it. Listen, different players come and go, right? Totally understand. 
Dana has made it about the sport. He never made it about the fight. Uh, he never made it about one fighter. He is very quick to call out anybody. It doesn't matter if it's the number one guy in the league. He'll call him out, John Jones. He'll call out Connor if he screws up, but he'll back him up to the highest level. He'll say that was some stupid shit he did. He'll sit there and straight up tell you what he likes, what he doesn't like. But everybody learned during COVID, he was the number one commissioner in all of sports. Every commissioner in America caved. NBA caved. NFL caved. MLB caved. Every commissioner caved except for one guy who had brass balls called Dana White who said, I don't give a shit. We're going to find a place to do the fight. So during COVID, you know what's the only sport the world watched? We watched UFC. No one's watching a freaking football game with no fans out there and cardboards. What am I going to do with cardboards? Oh, no, we're going to watch, hey, you can buy this seat for your face to be on the, you know, basketball game. Who gives a shit? It was the most boring finals Lakers won ever. They shouldn't even deserve to have won that final. There was no audience, nobody booing against you. But everybody realized, here's Dana as a commissioner, then it's everybody else. You're not at his level. He's a wartime uh, leader as well as a peacetime leader. Mm. He's learned how to balance both. prestige moving together. He said something in an interview. He says, listen, man, maybe it's just the fact that I'm getting old and I'm getting soft, but I have a hard time seeing what's going on with some of these guys. And, you know, in the way his personal life, when he went through that crisis and the way he put it, he says, you want me to be embarrassed? How much more embarrassed do you want me to be? Mm. You know how embarrassing it is to talk to my wife and my kids? Mm. You know how embarrassing that is? This is nothing compared to how embarrassing to, to have to face my kids. Mm. You respect that. You love that. There's you a degree of clarity, especially to Dana, that is very rare. And I think that one of the things the UFC's done is make boxing particularly feel so antiquated and pedestrian. And the fact that KSI almost beat Tommy Fury, you know how bad that would have been for boxing? That's not good. That's not good. But he, KSI does not represent UFC either. Uh, he, he doesn't, but what would have happened if a YouTuber would have beaten a professional boxer with a last name of Fury, it's humiliating. Correct. Hu and many people would have said he could have won on the points, but- What was it that you said? You made some comparison about jockeys and horses to do with Dana White. Yes, I made the analysis with Elon Musk, where you either bet on the- oh, The same goes with Dana White as well. Yeah, though. yeah. So you got the jockey and the horse, okay? You got Dana White is the jockey. The horse is UFC. Elon Musk is a jockey. Tesla is the horse, okay? So if tomorrow Elon Musk resigned from Tesla to only do Twitter, what happens to Tesla? It's going to be disturbing for a lot of investors because a lot of people bought Tesla because it's Elon Musk. A lot of people are selling Tesla and getting rid of their cars like AOC <laughs> it's Elon because Musk. it's Elon Musk ever since <laughs> yeah. he bought Twitter. Double-edged no. sword. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. But, you know, to me, in a perfect world is if you can have both. I think UFC is a great product, phenomenal product, addicting mm. product, okay, mm. viral product. Uh, but Dana White is an incredible jockey. Do you remember someone brought up, I think it was Israel Adesanya had been using the N-word and... It's at the press conference. I mean, it must be fun for the press, you know, to sit down and Dana sits down and he goes, all right, guys, what's going on? The gate tonight was da 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 da, da. We broke this. He was the fight of the night. And then he just looks up and someone asks him a question and he just says what he thinks. You know, he doesn't say something that the media team has prepped him on. Although I'm sure he's got training and he understands the boundaries, but nothing feels prescribed. 
manufactured, uh, conceited, uh, nothing f- contrived. Nothing feels like that. It just feels like this is what the guy thinks. Uh, someone, I, I saw this on the internet. Someone had talked about many organizations and YouTubers at the moment are trying to speed run authenticity, right? They're trying to growth hack relatability. How can I make myself seem more authentic and relatable than I actually am? And obviously, it's kind of a self-defeating prophecy, which is that the only way to be authentic is to be authentic. Mm-hmm. And there's a degree of trust. You know, I mean, Dana, dude, the start of this year was rough for him. That uh, Him and his missus got into a scuffle yeah. and it got videoed and it was maybe like New Year's Eve or something like that. Oh, yeah. January 1st, guess I was starting 2023. Right. The worst way possible. And he comes out and you have faith that you go, yeah, this guy meant what he said. There's, I don't think that there's any demons lurking in the closet because I may regret saying that at some point in future, but I don't think that I'm going to need to because I just have faith that I'm not Dana White. I don't have stock in Dana White. I just, I'm a good judge of character and I see in him someone that seems to tell the truth more often than not and seems to be very open and honest and own his mistakes. And people love that. People really, really like that. So yeah, it makes him incredibly likable. Authenticity at the highest level. That brand is a very authentic brand. He he's had his uh, uh, you know his enemies. He's had the people that have challenged him and given him a hard time. But Dana in a, in a past life could have been a gangster. Maybe he was, but he could have been a gangster. He could have ran a family. That's how Dana is. He could have been. He Dana is almost not a mob boss you know, of a Gambino family or Genovese or Colombo, Dana's more the guy that ran the commission, like a Luciano. Mm. That's Dana. And to be that guy, there is no book you can read to be that guy. You can read 48 Laws of Power 100 times, you can't be that guy. You either are that guy, you're not that guy. Big boss energy. Dana is that guy. Dana's that guy. One of your quotes is, when you're winning, you're not as good as you think you are. When you're losing, you're not as bad as you think you are. What's that mean to you? Both of them lie, you know. Both of them is exaggerated, you know. Both of them uh, are when you when you're winning, everybody's telling you how amazing you are. Oh my God, let me tell you, dude, you you, you know what? You're the best. You're amazing. You know, you're just better than that guy, and you're better than this guy. And it always takes me back to that quote of Marcus Aurelius, who had a slave that would sit behind him and always whisper to him, "Hey." You're just a man. You're just a man. You're just a man. That's right. 40 laws of power, right? You're just a man. You're just a man. You're just a man. And then he would get up and he became the best emperor, what, 62 AD to 69, whatever the time is. And he becomes who he becomes. And we read about him now. You know, you pick up the book, Meditations, you're like, this is like mandatory reading for anybody. Yeah. What is this all about, right? You know, simple book, not that big. You can not read it in one consumption. hour. No, it's not. It's not. And you're going through it saying, what was this about? Then you Google, what did he mean by this? Wow. I didn't think about it that way. So, and then when you're losing, everybody tells you, I told you, you shouldn't have done that. I knew you weren't going to make it. Yeah, I, I, I told you it wasn't for you. You weren't that guy. And you believe that as well. So both of them are, are lying. For me, politically, politically, I'm a capitalist, hardcore capitalist. I fully am a capitalist to the core. I think the free market will create solutions to problems. I think the free market's gonna filter out all the fakers in uh, pharma, in 
finance, in podcasting, in sports, in real estate, in insurance. It takes two decades, but it'll filter people out. It's not, it's got zero sympathy for you. It doesn't care to be friend. You can give capitalism as many compliments as you want. He doesn't feel it. He has no emotions. You can't flatter capitalism. All he's interested in is results. Are you good enough? Can you last? Can you recreate yourself? Great. But when it comes on to politics, I want to hear both sides. Okay, I'm a Christian, but I held a podcast four weeks ago. I brought two Muslims and I brought two Christians. And I had them go at it for two hours, discussion. Because my uh, uh, conversation was more about, okay, if we agree on seven different things, we disagree on seven different things, but you agree on 23 different things, can we figure out a way to make this work? Why do you feel the way you do? Why do you feel the way you do? And they go back and forth, and you're sitting there saying, okay, interesting. Today, Israel-Palestine, with what's going on with Hamas, complicated, lots of issues. You know, on one end, the question is where pro-Israel, where folks are going back and forth, you know, I'm a pro-Israel guy. I'm from Iran. When I lived in Iran for 10 years, Iran was safer when Reza Pahlavi was there because they were strong and they had allies with everybody. And Israel was safe. The Middle East was safe. You could go and say, you know what, Patrick, next week, you know where I'm going? Where are you going? I'm going to Tehran, Iran, because Frank Sinatra is performing there. I'm going to do a podcast with Frank Sinatra. I said, you're doing a podcast with Frank Sinatra in Tehran, Iran? Sick. You would have been able to say that in 76, in 75. So the Middle East was fairly peaceful. Not perfect, but it was peaceful. But at the same time, it you know, you got to ask the question, how did Israel with the best intelligence, Mossad, not know that for one year Hamas was training for this? How did you not know that they went and built a city similar to the one that you haven't trained on how to break into homes and take hostages? You didn't know that? You really didn't know that. And intelligence gave you a report from here, from Egypt, but you didn't know that. It's a fair question to ask. But when you ask that question, guess what people say? What kind of a question is that? This is not the time to ask that question. Do you realize what they're doing to kids? I don't support it. I'm not supporting any of that stuff. Then I got another question because Palestinians say, that's exactly right. This was intentional by Israel. They know what I ask Palestinians and they also don't ask this question. Here's a question. If you're so peaceful, who knows more about Palestinians? Us who live in America or UK or your neighbor? If you live in a condo or if you live in a house and you've been living in this house for five years or 10 years, you have a neighbor on this side, you have a neighbor on this side. You know, when they do barbecues, you know how much they drink, you know who, which in-laws comes in, you know the son when he sneaks in the girlfriend at one o'clock in the morning, you know the daughter when she sneaks out and changes her skirt and gets into a car with that bad boy and goes out and does what she does and she comes back at four o'clock. You know your neighbors, you see all their mess, okay? If, if Palestine and Gaza is filled with so many peaceful people, why is Egypt not taking them as refugees to go to Egypt? Egypt knows a lot about you. Why is it only 800 people? Why are they not letting a million people come to you? So somebody may say, what a shameful question for you to ask. How dare you ask the question? I think both questions need to be asked. What you do with it is up to you, okay? So for me, this whole concept of when you're winning, don't believe the hype. When mm. you're losing, don't believe the hype. Whatever story even your own side is saying, why don't you be skeptical a little bit and question it for yourself and see if you can entertain both ideas. I, I want to find ways to entertain both ideas as much as possible because I find myself becoming sharper when I do that and I eliminate blind spots. Anytime I'm 
100% one side have way too many blind spots. Do you think that we're obliged to have a take on everything? Because I haven't got involved in the Israel-Palestine conflict, and there's a lot of people that are very unhappy. The silence is violence crowd. Your silence is deafening. Why haven't you come out in support or against this group or that group? Is it an obligation for us all to have a take on everything? If if the background has to do anything with you, I think you are obligated to talk about it. Meaning if you're a Jew, I think you have to. If you're Palestinian, you have to. If you're a Muslim, I think you have to because it's your community, it's your pride, it's your background. If you're a political show and you've spoken about Ukraine and Russia and you've touched that topic, why are you not touching this topic? Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if you have. If no. your audience- No, 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 to all of the above. Then, then guess what that means? Then you're consistent. So no, you don't have to. If you've been consistent with all of it, you don't have to talk about it. That's not what the show is about. You could simply say, you wanna hear that show? Go to Ben Shapiro. Well, what people are saying, they're not saying, why haven't you commented? Specifically what Your they're saying is- Your position is what they want. What they're saying is, why haven't you said the thing that supports the stance that I want so you to take? So why haven't you? For each of them? No, why haven't, no, listen. Why haven't I commented on it at all? I mean, listen, there, there's a lot of events in the world that if you and I had to comment on all of them, we don't have a life. Mm -hmm. You would have to do 12-hour podcasts to mm -hmm. cover everything on a daily basis, no. But this is a once in 50 years type of crisis that could lead to a World War III. Numbers came yesterday where Ray Dalio, I don't know if you've sat down with Ray Dalio. I have, yeah. Okay, so you know who Ray Dalio is? He's a $20 billion man, built an incredible company. I had him on as well. Ray Dalio yesterday said, the chance of World War III is officially at 50%. And Jamie Dimon yesterday said, these are the most dangerous times we're living in decades. Okay. Mm. So one may say, well, you get tens of millions of eyeballs. You're no longer somebody that gets, back in the days, your first show when you did where 220 people watch it and mom and dad didn't watch it, your siblings didn't watch it and best friends didn't watch it. No, now you're getting. Well, that's the interesting question, right? Whether somebody with a sufficiently large platform is obligated to comment on things simply because they have a large platform. And you ask why, whether I have and why I haven't, if I haven't. I found out about the incidents that were going on in the Middle East on Twitter two days after they happened. And I wondered why Hamas was trending. And I thought, what the fuck's Hamas? Oh, fuck, that's Hamas. That was two days after everything had happened. By this time, I'd already had texts from people saying, dude, like, are you gonna get, are you gonna do an episode on this? And I was like, bro, the requisite amount of understanding for me to be able to add an educated opinion to this topic is not one that I have time to do. I mentioned to you earlier on, we've been traveling, we were in LA, we were there for two days. All I did, all I've done for the last week is travel, sleep, research, and record. And I've researched very specific guests. I haven't been researching stuff about the Middle East, right? right? So that's all I've had time to do. Is it not the precise problem that people who do not know what they're talking about have given COD psychology insights way outside of their domain of expertise and just added to the noise rather than adding to the signal? And yet, there is a group of people on the internet that would say, no, but this is so important to me that it's something that should move aside the other things that you're doing in life. And I think a final element of this is people who are chronically online cannot understand what it's like to not be chronically online. I am chronically online for periods. And then I am chronically traveling around and researching and recording and going from hotel to hotel, yeah. coming out to Florida. This is one of those periods during which 
there's a lot of reading that needs to be done to make a comment, to contribute to something that lots of people who are better educated than me can do. It's the same reason I didn't comment on COVID. COVID was something that was happening. We did a, a couple of episodes explaining how we felt people could better work from home, some mental health tools that we thought that they could use, uh, some strategies that they could do to uh, improve their time blocking and some stuff like that. Here's how we would design your homework station. I'm like, if you want me to comment and just throw horse shit at the wind, I can do it, but I don't think that it's going to benefit anything. So yeah, there's this compulsion, this obligation, I think, that uh, certain groups on the internet feel anybody that comments on things should get themselves involved with. And uh, it's just... Are you surprised? No, not at all. Because what they want, but again, they don't want you to comment. They want you to support their side. No, that's a different story. That, that, that's a different story. There's a difference between commenting and supporting right? I'm not, if I comment, I'm giving you my thoughts and I'm going to share with you my, uh, uh, you know, opinion, thoughts on my life experience, mm -hmm. on what I think is going on. And then from there, agree or disagree. For the people who are asking you to contribute, if your thoughts and your life experience led you to, uh, implicate one side rather than the other, sound like you were being more generous to one side rather than the other, they would very quickly say, I wanted you to comment, but I didn't want you to say that. They would very quickly have an but issue is with Is that it. your brand though? Is your brand uh, uh, of, of 700 episodes, 2,500 clips, you know, is your brand given opinion on current events? Have you done that in the past? It's because, because here's what happens. So in the market, you know how in Hollywood, mm -hmm. they say this guy's a triple threat. What's a triple threat? Act, sing, dance, okay? In podcasting, there's also triple threats, okay? What's a triple threat? A great interviewer, which you are, mm -hmm. but that's one of three. Two is perspective and opinion, which Joe Rogan is. People want to hear what Joe has to say about this. And then three is entertain. Can you entertain me while you're giving me your perspective or asking questions where I'm kind of like, ah, ha, 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 ha. Man, I was funny as hell. Yeah. So Joe, the reason why Joe is number one is because Joe's great host, we want to hear his perspective, agree or disagree. He has the he has the conviction and the confidence to give a sight and be willing to change. Hey, one minute you're voting for Bernie Sanders. Four years later, you're saying to save America, you got to vote for Trump and Republican. What? What are you talking about, right? So then three is he entertains you. He makes you laugh. Hmm. Your brand, you have to take the risk whether you want to go to two. But I don't think you need to comment on absolutely everything. If Joe was to be asked, what do you think of Aaron Rodgers' most recent Achilles rupture? As you but, said but earlier that's on. Not, that's not a, but there's a different story with that. You asked about consistency earlier on. Ukraine, Russia didn't comment on. COVID, COVID didn't comment on. But then that's your brand then. But, but, but by the way, what you just said mm -hmm. is your perspective. Absolutely. But it's a meta perspective on what's going on. You're right? not going to please everybody. Though, look, I'm Armenian and Assyrian. Okay. So and I was born in Iran. So here's where I'm screwed. Mm -hmm. I'm a half Armenian, half Assyrian, born in Iran, and I'm an American. Okay. So Four when- horsemen of the apocalypse. Oh then. my God. Yeah, so yeah. whenever something happens with Armenian genocide, I have to within a second comment on it. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I do, but not within a second because I don't have intel. So when you're talking about your days, what it looks like, research, all that stuff- you're telling the truth. 
but I'm running nine companies and I got a wife and I got four kids and I'm transitioning with another company and I'm doing research on a podcast and I'm doing the interviews and I'm running a tech startup and I'm running a consulting firm with clients that are traveling worldwide to come to us. Mm-hmm. And I'm doing our, my, our best to kind of see what's going on with stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's going to be days you just don't have time. And the audience can understand and cannot understand it, right? That's a decision they got to make. Uh, so Assyrians. Hey, did you see what happened at that theater? When are you going to comment at this wedding that just took place and 100 people were dead and a place caught on fire and these people? Okay, great. Let me get some intel and then I'll comment on it. And then I did, you know, or Iran or, you know, but, but the natural part where I would take it as a compliment is the audience is leaning on you to see how you would assess this issue and they trust the way you reason. And nowadays, there's not enough people who are able to reason to give a different perspective because they simply don't trust mainstream media. But then the next step is, do you want to take the risk of going in that side? If your brand is not on COVID, not on uh, Ukraine, not on this, then you're staying consistent. I think largely the main lesson I learned, I learned this from Douglas Murray, is that there are a lot of people in the online space who do not have expertise within a particular domain and have it in another one. They have expertise within psychology or climate change or whatever it might be. And then they start thinking to themselves, well, why, why shouldn't my thoughts on the Ukraine be important to people? Well, everybody thinks that my insights about climate change are, are absolutely wonderful. And they Val- start to get point. out over yep. the skis outside of their domain yep. of competence. Yep. If you want to talk about my domains of competence, I'll comment on it. For me, there are people out there who are capable, prepared to do the work, have the time, and have the expertise. I don't think that the internet needs more noise. I think it needs more signal. And I would be contributing nothing short of noise if I did that. I'm also just not passionate about learning about this topic. And I understand that in order for me to give the, for me to meet the bar of evidence and insight that I would want to, to feel proud about my opinion, I need to be passionate about it, right? I need to be compelled to learn about it. Are you passionate about life? Of course I am. Would you like to live to 100 years old? Yes. Okay. So do many of your listeners because the feedback you give has to do with living a great life because mm-hmm. people are watching the life you're living. The only thing I would encourage you to consider from the audience side is this is a different crisis. This crisis, if reasonable people like you can find a way to lower the overreaction that people are having with everything that's out there, I would say you would actually contribute to lowering the overreaction community. So I'm, I'm simply complimenting you to consider the fact that people are looking to see how a reasonable person like you that can give a logical perspective, because that's what's missing today. And when a Ray Dalio, when a Jamie Dimon, when many of these guys are saying 50%, and you with your millions of people who listen to you can, and it's not a niche audience where it's in one country or two countries. Your audience is worldwide, 100 plus countries. You got people listening to you. I think maybe from that level, the feedback from the audience could be, this is not a regular issue. We'd like to hear your thoughts. And then Mm. whether you choose to do it or not, Mm -hmm. it's your prerogative and we move on. Yeah, you've got a, you mentioned there about this sort of loss of faith in our institutions right? The previous gatekeepers, the people that we would have relied on to tell us what's what in the world. What do you think about this rising skepticism, 
there is also a, a degree of conspiratorial thinking, uh, heterodox cynicism around what we're being told. Is this leaving a vacuum where people's uncertainty is making their lives worse? What is going to happen from a, a sense-making perspective? How do people make sense of the world when we can't trust the information communicators? Well, that's, the, that's why they want to hear from you. So, so what you're saying is, is validating their point. So in America today, we are at the lowest levels we've ever been for Americans trusting mainstream media and trusting the government, not one or the other. It's the lowest in both. We don't trust the government. We don't trust mainstream media. The last time the, the people trusted mainstream media and the government the highest was right before Kennedy died. After that, that was at 72%. It's gone from 72, 65, 60, down to today, 27%. People simply don't trust the mainstream media to give feedback on what's really taking place. There's a reason why Rogan gets more eyeballs on his show than all these guys combined. And people are watching to see what he has to say. There's a reason why Shapiro gets the eyeballs he gets. There's a reason why you get the eyeballs. There's a reason why all these other guys get the eyeballs. It's because they want to hear a different perspective. You know, we're going back to the 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 story where, you know, and this quote's been criticized many times. It's not really true. You know, amateurs build, you know, professionals built the Titanic, amateurs built the ark, you know, this whole story that they go back and forth. Professionals run mainstream media, amateurs run podcasting. But the world is trusting amateurs running podcasting more than the people that build the Titanic. Because a lot of people think mainstream media is about to sink like the Titanic dick. Now, whether it did or not, who knows? But people want to talk to somebody that's just a regular guy. Says, yo, what's your story? What do you think about this? What are your thoughts on this? Do you really agree? Mm. Do I, does anybody else feel, I kind of feel that way as well. I'm a little bit skeptical. I'm a little bit worried about this. What's going on? Is it really as big as they make it out to be? Mm. Should I trust these guys? So I'm not surprised this is taking place. By the way, you know what's the only thing that's keeping mainstream media in business? It's only a couple of things that keep a mainstream media in business. Number one is 75-year-olds, 70, 75-year-olds are keeping mainstream media in business, okay? So that's another 10 to 15 years before that generation is no longer here. That audience is gone. Number two is big pharma. If two countries in the world that allow big pharma companies to advertise, it's US and New Zealand. Every other country in the world, you cannot advertise. The only two countries in the world where pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer that can advertise is US and New Zealand. Everywhere else, there is no commercials on TV. Do you realize what would happen if a president did an executive order, got Congress, everybody in it to say, moving forward, big pharma can no longer advertise on mainstream media? You know what happens the next day? Every one of them goes out of business and all these talented guys at ESPN or at CNN or Fox or ABC that are getting the five, 10, 15, $20 million contract, gone. 80% of revenue is gone. And a lot of these guys now have to go and try to make it in the world that you're making it. And this is hard. What you're doing is hard. There's not a teleprompter behind me. There's nobody whispering in your ears what to say, follow up <laughs> with this question. This is all you doing it, right? To them, hey, ask him this. Follow up with this. We just found data. 63%. He's lying. Did Follow up watch, with this. Did you watch any of the late night hosts when they tried to do a podcast between them? Yes. Or did you think from a professional's perspective, a amateur professional's perspective? There's a reason why they can't do anything without writers. You know, they, I mean, don't get me wrong. To me, Fallon is a very talented guy. A very talented guy. Uh, and you're not going to get to that job without having talent. These guys got a lot of talent. They're workers. 
But the moment writers are done, you mean to tell me for May 12th, you guys can't do an episode until what? October, which they just started with two weeks ago. You realize writers control this world. Now, the writers are worried that ChatGBT can write the jokes of what's going on and what if AI can pop out these you know, jokes and what could take place. No, this game is a very, very hard game. This is not an easy game. Think about what Spotify did. What other president in the last 20 years has been as popular as Obama? And let me get this straight. Obama and another guy named Bruce Springsteen start a podcast and Spotify drops them? What? Who else has been more popular in the last 20 years on television than Kim Kardashian with 300 million followers on Instagram? Spotify signs a podcast with her, then they drop her? What? Who else has been more on TV and every magazine newspaper than Harry and Meghan, but Spotify dropped their podcast and hasn't fully, is like, we're not renewing the contract, and then they give Rogan a few hundred? Wait, what? So let me get this straight. Just being famous doesn't help to have a podcast? No. Wow. I thought it was just about fame. No, this is hard. This is an art. This is very difficult to do. It's not easy to do. So if mainstream media sinks like the Titanic, 90% of that talent is going to disappear and they're not going to know what to do. 90% of them. It's not an easy game. There's does this mean or does this contribute to complicity or those commentators and all of the other people whose wages ultimately are paid for by those adverts does this does this create a uh, perverse incentive for them in what way that they may be prepared to compromise something they truly think to not jeopardize the people that ultimately pay their wages that there is a risk to them saying something out of turn which may I mean, are you really asking that question or you know the answer to that question? You already know the answer. You're a smart guy. Yeah. No, of course. They, they, they have to. They don't have a choice to take that position, right? I'll give you an idea. Chris Cuomo was on CNN for God knows how many years and he was the number one guy for two or three years. What does CNN do to Chris? Fired. His brother, Andrew Cuomo, governor, fired. And then he's got a $125 million pending lawsuit against CNN. And now CNN... Folks can't talk to Chris. I had him on the podcast. And for the longest time, Cuomo was hated by a lot of people on the right. Absolutely hated because of the stuff he would say. Where is Jesus? Is Jesus going to come and save you with COVID? What's Jesus going to do for you? And all this stuff he would say, right? Well, he came on a podcast and I'm with one of my partners in Dallas. He's a billionaire himself in the insurance space. He's the number one power player in insurance. We're at his uh, uh, office, corner office on the top, one of the sickest offices you'll see in your life, like 68th floor. He's overlooking all of Dallas, Brian. And he says, you know, it's kind of weird watching Cuomo on your podcast. I said, why? He says, he sounded different. You know, there was moments where I kind of liked him when I was watching this. And this is not a guy I can say something like that with. You know how many people said that? What happened to him? He's now a free agent. He's got a shirt he sells that's called free agent. He's got a podcast that says, you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, with something Cuomo project that he's got a podcast. And how does he dress? Like you? We're with him a couple of weeks ago in, in uh, what do you call it? In uh, uh, Sag Harbor, in, uh, uh, up in uh, that entire area, whatever that area is, I forget the name. Uh, Sagaponic, Sag Harbor, all that stuff. And we go to his house. My kids are running around the back. He says, hey, Pat, somebody wants to talk to you. I said, who's that? FaceTime. 
It goes like this. I'm like, oh shit. What's up, Robert Downey Jr.? How you doing? So I'm having a conversation with him. But forget about talking to Robert Downey Jr. I wanted to see my kids' reaction, especially my two boys. Because my boys, when he died, my kids were devastated. When he dies, Iron Man dies in, you know, in the... Do you know what today is in what? the Marvel Cinematic Universe? No. Today is the canonical death day of Tony Stark when he clicks his fingers. Today is the day, the date. Get out of here. Today is the date. I did not know that. Today what is, what the, is the chance of me bringing up the story? And I don't even know that story. So I said, Dylan, Tico, come here. I said, Daddy, we're running around with the dogs. I said, trust me, come here. And Chris turns the camera around. He goes like this. My son goes, oh my God. Zion, man. I know you. <laughs> and then the other son, Tico, his reaction, Dylan's reaction. You know, you love Robert Downey. He's one of those guys that you absolutely love. When you go back to his journey, I was talking about the movie that my dad and I watched 30 years ago, Only You. And the only movie I've ever watched four hours, two hours and two back to back in a row was Judge. And it's by Robert Downey Jr. What's the moral of the story? The moment Chris Cuomo was free and he didn't give a shit, he just kind of told you what he was kind of going through. Hmm. Whether you like it or not, you may not agree with everything, but he's finally free. A lot of these guys working on mainstream media, they're not free. And we now see Tucker's transition. And guess what? He's killing it. Okay. Love him or hate him. When Tucker puts on a show, everybody's watching what this guy's got to say. So I found out from the guys that light and tech, all of this stuff yeah. that we're doing here, who understand very, very, very closely what's going on. Ben, was it anamorphic lenses? Is that what they shot Tucker's first thing in his garage with? Yeah, so anamorphic lenses, a very particular type of lens, very particular type of shooting, very uh, short, wide. So it has the image of maybe it was his garage or something like that or a living room with the background behind him make no mistake that is lit and shot in cinema quality right with the facade of it being a a sort of low budget <laughs> thing right so it's this yeah we beautiful, just did this on an iphone yeah precisely it's yeah. this beautiful blending of both yeah. and uh that's exciting i think it's exciting to see what these guys do and also you know i love this about Given that we spend so much time talking and, and people have this uh, concern about whether or not someone's gaming the system, are they trying to growth hack relatability, right, or authenticity, seeing, I, I would be lying if I said that I didn't take a, an amount of pleasure to see late night hosts that have got massive platforms struggle to hold a conversation together for an hour over Zoom. Because that is ultimately the battle place of ideas, right? It's not how well can you read a script from a teleprompter. I mean, there is skill, absolutely skill in being able to do that. And I couldn't. I couldn't do the writing. I couldn't do the performance. I couldn't do the bits and the blah, blah, the music. But largely, you are a marionette, right, that's being ventriloquized by a handful of writers and, and execs. Ultimately, seeing what you can do when the gloves are off is more interesting to me. This is very hard. This is, this is very hard because how long is your average podcast? Hour and a half. Okay. So an hour and a half of keeping people's interest with no breaks and nobody talking to you and touching up the makeup to them. What are you talking about? Mm. That is absolutely insane to do something like that. No, this is very hard. And the market has proven that this isn't for everybody. The market has proven you cannot keep my attention for that long. This is very, very difficult. When, when people started saying, I remember I hired a, uh, 
a marketing expert, you know, 13 years ago, 14 years ago, he came in and said, well, studies have shown you're making one of the mistakes you're making on YouTube. Your videos are about 12 minutes long. Yeah, too long. <laughs> and the only videos that do well is 12 minutes. After 12 minutes, I said, nah, man, I'm doing 42 minutes, 28 minutes, hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. That's a mistake. Number one thing we have to do is no video can go past 13 minutes. Like, dude, okay, maybe this guy's the expert. He sold his company for a couple million. You know what happened? The day we fired him, 60 days later, our first video goes viral and gets 40 million views. Today, it's got a half a billion views, okay? For the life of an entrepreneur, 90 second takes off, right? And we start making other clips and other videos and other stuff. And you see Joe takes it to a whole different level, mm. three hours. And you got Lex Friedman takes it to a whole different level, four hours, three hours and 48 minutes, you know, yeah. what Lex does. He did seven hours with Balaji. <laughs> <laughs> glutton for punishment. Yeah, you um, you tweeted something that I thought was quite interesting. You said, "Why do so many people who come to the America from other countries with little to no money at all, within ten years, outpace the average person who was born here?" What is going on, where Americans who have all of the I'm an immigrant to this country, right? Many people who are given from the very beginning all of the benefits of being from this country, why is it that they are outpaced by people who weren't born here? So six, seven months ago, I'm sitting with my state planner, and one of the fears I have for the last 10 years is what I'm going to do with my kids, with the wealth, with money. Am I raising them in a way that they're not going to turn out being the you know, the snobby, arrogant kid that, you know. Silver spoon. Oh man, I cannot, I never liked those kids in school. Those are the kids I got into fights with. I never liked those kids. So I don't want to raise those types of kids. And then you go and read these books about which families generationally created a wealth that state, like Vanderbilt raised a bunch of snobs. So Vanderbilt's money only lasted one generation. Generation later, there's no money left. So when you Read the story about that Anderson Cooper's a Vanderbilt, but his mother said, hey, even though we were Vanderbilt, don't expect any kind of trust fund. Baby, you, you ain't got no money here. Nothing's coming over to you. You got to make your money. You know, and but you look at the Medici family and what they did, five, six, seven generation. What did they do differently? You look at Rockefeller still has the money. You look at some of these other families that kept the money within the family. What did they do? What did they structure? And there's state planning we can go do, you know, 10, 15, 20, 50,000 dollars. Then there's high guys you can hire that's a hundred thousand, quarter million, a million dollars. But those estate planners, when you hire, you know what they do? They interview your kids. So they go sit down with your kids, and after they talk to you, and they'll say, How do you want to set this up for the money with your kids? Who gets money? What do they need to do? What's the criteria? Are you okay if they get this? What kind of cars do you not want them to buy to waste the money? Who do you want them to work for? What happens with this business? Can they lose all the money? Are you given equally? Here's what this family, and they give you all these suggestions on how to prop properly set it up. Once you and your wife agree on what you want to do with that wealth, these guys have meetings with all your kids without you there. And they'll record it so you can see how the meeting went, went but they're setting it up with them. So they'll say, okay, kids, this is uh, on behalf of your parents. Here's a few things you need to know. Number one, um, the good news is your parents are very prepared on what they've done with you. And here's what you can get. Your parents have worked very hard and they have made a lot of money. And if you do it right, some of that can be passed over to you. But if you don't, you're not going to get it either. Let me go through some of these criteria. Da, 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 da. These three things you do, you're not going to get anything. These two things you do, ba, 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 ba. If you do this, here's what's going to happen. This is what they want us to use the money with. And then they kind of break it down to them. Now, 
You know how many families actually do that? Very few. Those conversations, most people don't have. Most people are so much about go, 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 go. And then you die unexpectedly. Oh, we didn't even set up the state planning, let alone the detailed estate planning. No. Okay. Now your kids are spoiled, rotten, doing what they're doing. I've had this conversation with a number of friends. Uh, ben Francis, who is the CEO of Gymshark, his net worth is triple Drake's. Um, he's a stud of a guy, by the way. He's a I serious dude. I had him on dude. the podcast a couple of years ago. Stud. Serious dude. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to him, and I think that it's the same with you. One of the things that you value the most in your upbringing have been the hard times, the spit and sawdust uh, lessons and rules, the, hard, the school of hard knocks, yeah. right? That's yeah. given you the work rate that has permitted you to be able to achieve the success that you have and reverse uh, locally reverse entropy, right? So you've been able to wrangle your reality in a mm -hmm. way that you want it to. Mm -hmm. And yet, you have worked so hard to be able to give your kids opportunities that you never had. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know that they need to go through the hardships and that those are where the lessons are learned that are going exactly. to prepare them. This to me seems like a very uh, interesting tension, right? I want to give my kids opportunities that I've worked so hard for. If I don't, what the fuck was the point in me That's working right. so hard? That's right. And yet they need to go through the difficulty they need to do. How have you found this tension between the two? Well, that's a great question, but I want to finalize by making a point. When you ask the question about why is it that so many people come to America within 10 years, they have more money than the people that were born in America. Mm. Because unfortunately, the way we've ran America, if the American born kids are kids of these families, they're the kids of the families that spoiled them in America. There's no more earning things in America. It's just handed out to them. We're printing money left and right. We're giving away income to people left and right. We're making life easier. We're incentivizing the wrong things. Do you know in 1940 in America, what percentage of kids were born to single mothers? In 1940 in America, what percentage of kids were born to a single mother who's not married with no father in the household? 4% is the number. Did you know the number or no? Mm -hmm. It's 4%. You know what that number is today? Over 50. It's over 40%, over shy 40. of 50%. You're yeah. right there at the number. You mean to tell me we went from 1944% to today? So what happened there? First of all, policies by FDR, social security and the incentives of taking care of single mothers. Then Lyndon Johnson in 1965 took it to a whole different level. Mothers are sitting there saying, the more kids I have, the more entitled programs I get. Great, why would I get married? If I get married, I lose those benefits. The incentive programs America set up totally screwed everything up. It incentivized the bad behavior. It's like telling a kid, can you imagine if you're in estate planning, you say, for every kid you have not married, I'll pay you $700. Whose fault is that? Parents' fault. Bad policies have consequences. Yeah, you created bad policies. What person in the right state of mind, when they have their wealth, America's a family, it's a corporation, what person in the right mind would incentivize, what parents would incentivize kids to say, I'm gonna have more kids and I'm gonna give you money out of the living trust? Nobody in the right mind would do that, but America did. So what happened to us? Now we got all this crime. Now we're paying the price for it because all these years, there's no father in there to put them in their place, to challenge them, to straighten them up. That's not in place. You know, So th that is a missing piece that these kids don't have in America. So to me, if we looked at America as a family, as a corporation, estate planning matters. You know, living trust matters. The right policies matters. Listen, I even think to the point where, you know how in America voting starts at 18 years old? 
I would much rather, this is a very uh, strange uh, policy I'm going to share with you. When I posted this on, on YouTube, a lot of people were very upset with me. I would much rather have somebody who's 14 and a half years old, who's had a job and paid $1,000 in taxes, vote than a 28-year-old kid who's never had a job, never paid taxes. I don't want that guy to vote. Why? Because he contributed to society, the 14 and a half year old kid, the 15 year old kid contributed to society and realized how hard it is to pay the taxes into whatever they're spending money on. You wanna spend $100 billion to Ukraine? We could have built 20 walls. We could have built 20 walls with that money that was sent. You're not saying Ukraine, I'm saying it, so you're safe, don't worry. They're not, they're not gonna come after you, they're gonna come after me. So all of these things that you look at were going away from earning. When an immigrant comes here, all they're looking at is saying, wait a minute, I can go work this and do this and do this and do this, and I'm gonna earn this, yes. I'm going, I'm going town all day, I'm good with this. Many Americans don't have that mindset because bad policies have consequences and we're suffering uh, uh, the negative impact of that. But you asked a follow-up question, right, with kids, and your question is how to balance it with challenging them yet still having the opportunity. What was the question you were asking? Yeah, the tension between you affording your kids the benefits that all right. of your hard work has allowed them to do. And so I'm greedy. I'm very greedy. And here's what I mean by I'm very greedy. I want my kids as close to me for the rest of my life. We have a family that lives in our community. Uh, Messi just bought a house right next to our house, and he just moved into the community. He caused a lot of mayhem. It's all over the place. Cops are coming in every week. We have, you know, what do you call it? Uh, paparazzi craziness that's going on. But one of the families that lives in our community, they run a medical company with six, 7,000 employees. So the, the founders, the mom and dad, their house is here, right next door to the house. They have two sons. The other son lives here, who's the chief marketing officer. Their oldest son's house is here. Each son has four kids. Each son has four kids. Both sons are doctors. Both sons married someone who's a doctor, and they each have four kids. They have a structure on what they do Monday nights. Every Tuesday night, they have dinner together, and they talk about God. Every Wednesday, there's a system yeah. to everything they do. He'll call me and say, hey, we went fishing this morning. I got a bunch of fish. Can I drop it off to you? I am enamored by how those parents created that kind of a structure where their kids are respectful, their grandkids are respectful. We're going to Halloween, we're walking in Halloween, doing trick-or-treating, and the son comes by, 17-year-old son comes by, and he says, yeah, he doesn't have his uh, iPhone with him. I said, how does he not have his iPhone with him? He says, in our family, standard's very easy. You want your phone? You gotta have straight A's, he's gotta be. I said, well, let me get this straight. Your 17-year-old son doesn't have a phone because he doesn't have one because he has one B. He says, yeah, it's our standard. I said, what are you talking about? He says, it's very simple. You just got to make sure you got straight A's. You'll get a phone, you get the car, you get this. Now, somebody's going to listen to this and say what? What a freaking extreme set of standards. That's tyranny. That's tyranny. That's exactly the type of kids that end up becoming da-da-da-da. No problem. It's called standards and expectations. And for a family who has the ability to use money and waste it and do whatever they want to keep that kind of standards, I respect that even more. And guess what? The son loves his father, loves his mother, loves their grandparents, respectful kids. So it, it's not easy to do, but if it matters to you, eventually in my life when I say I'm greedy, I would love to create a proposition for my kids where 20 years from now they wanna run one of the companies, they wanna be within the company, they wanna work with one of the companies, and I like them to live close to me. Will it happen? 
It's going to take us 30 years to find out because- Dude, pan-generational you know. housing. I'm seeing yeah. it in Austin, right? A commune, a ranch where yeah. someone's buying up a ton of land. And then there's another one of those puppies down there if you want it. Uh, they're buying up a ton of land. And we're going to not just have us. We're going to have somebody else come and live with us as well. We're going to have grandma and grandpa, and they're going to be that. This is the way I'm that it was. This. this is the way that it was. And here's another thing to consider, right? Would you rather Is have drinking two going to do anything to me or no? What's you're going to survive? You're going to be you're dialed in. Survive. You're going to survive. I promise. <laughs> whatever, whatever the internet throws at you, you'll survive. So, what is the? Uh, yeah. So we've got that's citrus. That one's orange. Orange sunrise. Okay. Yep. Interesting. Yeah, wild got citrus. It. So, one of the interesting questions that you have here would be: Would you rather have a parent? who pities you more than they believe in you. You didn't do well. It's okay. That teacher doesn't understand. Let me pat you on the back. Come here, little Timmy. We'll take you for ice cream. Or would you rather have a parent who says, I believe in you more than, more than I pity you? I mean, look, I'll tell you, my dad, very annoying man, okay, because never sympathized, never felt sorry for anything, never. It was always standards and expectation, but he always loved me. So when I was six years old and my teacher asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, I want to be a father. Why? I said, because I want to be like my dad. I had a very good dad. My dad's still with us. He was in a hospital this week, but he's out. He's doing good. He's at the house. Kids love him. Everybody loves him. My kids all have a relationship with him. He's 81 years old. It took a lot to please my dad. My dad wasn't impressed by anything. He wouldn't be there and say, oh my gosh. And by the way, he's a Middle Eastern uh, father, which means I've never played catch with the guy. We've never thrown a football. We never played anything, no why, sports. Why, why? He just, he was a worker. Since eighth grade, he dropped out in Iran and he started working to take care of his mom and dad. Their family was very, very close, you know. But again, remember how earlier on when we we're talking about, you know, choosing your enemies wisely, hmm. we talked about how the, the top performers have a person that gave them unconditional love and one that brought a lot of pain, and then they chose their enemies wisely. I think the role of a person that is gentle and another one that nothing's ever good enough is a great combination. I think if both parents are gentle, that's a problem. And I also think if both parents are nothing's ever good enough is also a problem. Yeah. I think you need a little bit. There's a reason why the creator, God, created the dynamics that he created. You know, I have a, a, one of our guys, we're spending our photographers with us and he's holding his daughter while we're doing a photo shoot this Saturday and she keeps asking for mom. She keeps asking, I said, is she, is she daddy's girl? Mom? Oh, she says, no, it's all mommy. I said, when does she want you? Whenever she's scared, she comes to me. So the kid runs to daddy when she's scared, but goes to mommy when she's hurt. That's an interesting dynamic, mm -hmm. how it is. Mm -hmm. She feels safer by dad when there's a risk, but feels safer by mom when she's hurt because she's going to be pampered and taken Comforted, care of. Yeah. I think that's very healthy combination. There was a, a quarterback, uh, Brett Farr, many years ago. I don't know if you know Bar Brett Farr. He's a famous texter. That's an inside joke if you know who he is. But uh, <laughs> uh, he has his quarterback. He has his coach. So tough on him. So tough on him. Nothing was ever good with this quarterback, kicking his ass, talking shit to him in the sideline. How could you throw that interception? What the fuck was that all about? What was that all about? And he's afraid of the coach and he's always escaping the coach. 
but there was a guy that was, uh, I think his name was Mariucci, Steve Mariucci. And he would always put his arm around him. Listen, he believes in you. Once you prove him right, deep down inside, he believes in you. Mm. Go through the pass that you know he, he knows he can throw. Show him exactly what we got. Let's go win this game for him. Let's get it. So that dynamic worked incredibly well for Brett Favre, as well as many other players out there. So I think, you know, one without the other is a problem. If you got both, it's a great combination. Yeah, there's a lot of problems with fatherlessness in homes. Uh, Melissa Carney just wrote a new book called The Two-Parent Advantage, uh, Two-Parent Privilege, sorry. And uh, dude, it's terrifying. Just the raw data, the raw outcomes that you get. Did you, your mom and dad stay together? Yes. Okay. Married uh, till today. Yep. Only child. So Only child. Only child. So do you have the only child? Uh, Syndrome? Yes. What, do you mean the guy that's the center of all of these lights and stuff? <laughs> in some regards, okay. in, in some regards, yes, but I think I had quite a stern upbringing. I was held to incredibly high standards. Uh, it was very non-rebellious as a kid. Um, non-rebellious. Very non-rebellious. Very, very non-rebellious. Um, you know, wasn't going out, wasn't sneaking out. I don't think I ever got grounded once. Did God play a role or no? No. Standards and expectation, was it tough standards? High. high. Very high. What did your mom and dad do? Uh, dad is an engineer. Mom stopped working for probably 10 to 12 years to raise me while dad was out working. Uh, but this isn't, you know, dad was on a, the working class of most working class. We live in a, a city in the UK that was famous only for having the highest teen pregnancy rating in the UK. And then it lost that. So it didn't even have that as a <laughs> as a title anymore. At least you could brag about it. Now well, we got nothing to, to talk to. about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We haven't even got that. Yeah. Uh, so... But it was it was very formative, and you know I'm just thinking more and more about this tension between success making people soft. Uh, I spoke to David Goggins about it on the podcast. You know he's this guy who can command millions of dollars for speaking gigs, and he's choosing to go smoke jumping. Have you seen this thing that he's no. doing? So smoke jumping is when there's a wildfire in the middle of nowhere, and they need to airdrop in the firefighters, so they parachute in with a, a, a pack around their waist with all their stuff on. And they also put water, huge uh, water bucket things that they'll attach their hoses to separately, parachute them in, and they just live in the fire until they put it out. Sometimes they're out there for a week. Pretty sure he makes, it's either seven or $12 an hour that he makes for doing this smoke jumping, as it's called. It's in Canada for the most part, instead of going and doing this speaking tour. And I asked him about success making you soft. He says, I see it way too much. And that's why I, I don't like it. I'm not about the flash. I'm not about one, any of that. One of the best books in business was written by a legend, legendary CEO in Silicon Valley who ran Intel. I think he's the only guy that for a decade straight, he grew the company 100% every year. Unheard of what this guy did. Andy Grove, Hungarian guy, okay? You know what the book's title is? Only the Paranoid Survive. Only the Paranoid Survive. I've heard survive. you say that before. Yeah. So. I had a question to you around only the paranoid survive. I don't disagree that paranoia is an unbelievable competitive advantage. It's a very useful performance enhancer, right? You are paying more attention. You are more de detail-oriented. You're more fearful, all the rest of it. Ultimately, is it worth it, do you think? Is paranoia worth it as a life strategy? It, the, the, you are protected by those who take that seriously, okay? You know, burden is not something that's a sexy sell, you know? There, there's a lot of things that you and I can sell that's very sexy, okay? Work from home, very sexy. Yet the loneliness epidemic in America right now is record-breaking numbers we've never seen before, right? On 
what people are doing, how lonely they are. Numbers on depression is off the charts right now compared to what it was just 10 years ago. So yeah, you can sell work from home. You can sell three and a half day work week. You can sell laptop entrepreneur. You can sell, all, these are all sexy things to sell, right? You can sell, set up a funnel and make 20 grand a month and don't have to do anything. These are all very interesting, easy things to sell. Try selling burden. Go ahead and sell burden. Oh, the, the, the incredible honor of having burden of the responsibility of a nation or a state or a military or freedom. Or that, or that. Try selling it. It's, no, it's not an easy sale. It's a hard sale. Responsibility so, isn't sexy. So why are so many great leaders turned on by that burden? Why? Because someone's got to do it. So it, it all depends, you know, in the, in the book, Your Next Five Moves, I talk about how the most important question you got to answer in life is, who do you want to be? What type of life do you want to live? That's simple. Okay, so what does this mean? Do you want to be a founder? Yeah. You sure? Y yeah. Positive? I think so. It's kind of cool, right? Wanting to be a founder or entrepreneur? You sure you want to be a founder? You sure you want to be the number one guy? Tom Ellsworth, who was my business partner, said one of the best things to me. This guy was at the talk about the legendary interview of all time. It's the last interview of Steve Jobs and Bill Gates in Silicon Valley. Okay, wherever it was, 300 people were invited at this meeting. Tom was one of them. Was it recorded? From, it's recorded. You got to see it, by the way. Sick. It's the red chair. When you see the red chair, you're watching the right one. Steve Jobs is super skinny. Tom Ellsworth tells me, he says, Pat, it took me 50 years to realize I don't make a lot of money when I'm the number one guy. The most money I ever made is when I was number two through number six. Think about saying that. Think about taking 52 years to realize, 50 years to realize the most money you ever made was when you were the number two guy or number six guy. Because there's burden with number one. Number one has got to sell the dream. Number one has got to sell the vision. Number one has got to seem like even though we're about to go out of business, they're at peace, they're calm, they carry the burden, sleepless nights, your finances, you can't reveal to people if you're about to run out of money, we're going to make the expenses, we're going to make salaries, we're going to pay payroll. That's the number one. Who wants that burden? Nobody wants that burden. So no, if the idea is to sell that, no, it is not an easy sale. But if you want to know why you right now are here and we are able to do this podcast at a pretty unstable time in the world today, it's probably because around 500 people have the burden of making sure nobody messes with you and I where we are right now. And those 500 people have a thousand people underneath them or 500 people underneath them while you and I are able to sit here. So it's not the most sexy, attractive thing. Like in, in Smithsonian, I don't know if you've been to the Smithsonian in DC, mm -hmm. there's a part where you go and it shows, yeah. uh, you walk this way, it shows how Lincoln aged over, uh, it's an incredible thing to see. And there's a quote they by, by Lincoln about burden. Okay, the, the being a president is the greatest burden Hmm. A, pr a person can ever have, right? Hmm. Some, some quote like that, I'm paraphrasing. So it's not for everybody and it's not a sale. The Look person at, chooses uh, to do it. Obama before and after his eight years, right? He still looks good though. He, oh, he's, he's, still, he's, still, he's, got, still, he's still got yeah. swagger, but yeah, I mean, yeah. that was 20 years in eight That's years. That's right. So this is something I wanted to talk about. You have spent a lot of time reading about and researching and speaking to powerful people. Who do you think really runs the world? You're going to go there, huh, with the question. Who do I think runs the world? Um, so I used to ask the question. I said, who, who's got the most power uh, in America? Is it Congress? Is it president? 
Is it the CEOs of virtual governments? We're talking Google, Twitter, Facebook, you know, those guys, Amazon, you know, or is it billionaires? Okay, you know, the most richest man in the world. Who's got the most power? And you'd be amazed how few people say president. Because they come and go, you know? The famous quote with Putin that he says, you know, American presidents, you don't have to worry about it. They're going to be there four to eight years. Some suits are running, you know, and run the country behind closed doors. And he's got a very good point when he says something like that, Putin. But to me, there are a lot of alliances being built. So if you and I were to think about aspirational type of people, okay, you know how they say, you know, well, Michael Jackson eventually got to a point where he got so many different girls that he started trying with this and he started trying with this. And a lot of these people in Hollywood have so much sex with so many different people that they become creative mm. and they do dumb things, mm. right? Okay. Tiger Woods, the reason why he got these girls, because what do you know what it is to be the greatest golf, golfer in the world? And everybody throws their panties at you. you. You want to judge a guy like that? Why don't you go be the greatest golfer and see what it feels like to be one out of eight billion? You don't know what it's like. So they're kind of trying and experimenting with all this stuff, right? It's almost like I'm so much in a prison jail. Everybody's watching what I'm doing. I want to break the rules a little bit to see what I'm capable of mm -hmm. doing. Okay. Mm -hmm. so, so let's go process and dissect some of these guys that make all the money in the world. Okay. You become a billionaire. And you're still dangerously ambitious, not from a good place, but more selfish place. Okay, you took over an industry. Now you're worth $5 billion. Now you're worth 10. If you're a billionaire, you're the best at what you do in your space for the most part, or you help build the best in that space for the most part. Okay, cool. So maybe your marriage didn't work out. Maybe you're not the best father in the world. And you're like, well, I want more control. I want more power. I can't be a president. I don't want to be a president because if I run for president, they're going to reveal the things that I've done in my life. And God forbid, if that gets all the light, I don't want that. That's embarrassing. But you know what I'm going to do? What if I can take over the world? Aren't there other people like me that are driven by wanting to take over the world? What if we could make the world one place and we make all the decisions for everybody because I'm probably one of the smartest people in the world. I'm probably, and you know, that conversation is taking place. Again, you really start having that godlike figure. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with George Soros. You know, in one of the interviews he gave to LA Times, he says, I always fancied myself with being a god. Fancied myself with being a god. This is an LA Times interview 20 plus years ago. If you type in George Soros, LA Times, God. It's the most disturbing interview to read about this guy. A lot of people are very skeptical about him, right? He's well, like the boogeyman of a, a number of conspiracies. How many, how many people have you heard say, I always fancied myself with being a god? He says, but what's great about where I'm at right now is it's no longer a dream. It's not a it became a reality. Yeah. I have a friend who has spent a lot of time with super, super powerful people. And he told me about a meeting that he had with one individual in particular who spoke about being an apex predator. He said that apex predators don't care about prey. And even though the prey that he was referring to was still his own species, it was really haunting the story the way that that was told to me because you had someone who not only had the motivation to be able to go and enact whatever nefarious mm -hmm, malicious mm -hmm. plan but also had the actual resources to be able to go and do it, right? Those two things together are, they're scary. And that was something 
that really opened my eyes. I'm very non-conspiratorial in the way that I think. I, I, I always lean toward, you know, do not attribute to malice that which can be explained by stupidity. Do not attribute to coordination that which can be explained by coincidence. Uh, and yet the more that I read and the more that I learn about things, the more there there seems to be there, right? Yeah, you know, people are offended by different things. Um, some people being offended in their deepest insecurities, they're willing to use their ambitions to go to certain levels that at that point, they're not thinking about the consequences of ruining a lot of people's lives. That's not something they're thinking about at that level. So Hitler was offended. When you read Mein Kampf for you, study what Hitler did, he was simply offended. Somebody offended him. So his entire life was about doing what he did just because he was offended. Now, most people who are offended, they do what? They forget about it and they move on. Some of these guys want control. Some of these guys want to make decisions for you. Some of these guys on the money side, at least they go and make money to get power. Some people don't go make money to get power. Some people, Klaus Schwab, they're like, no, I'm not going to go make money to get power. I'm going to get power by creating laws and thinking I know what's best for you. So there's a lot of different people that you can put in these types of organization. You just have to think. Like if you were to think about the commission of the mob, always go back to it. Lucky Luciano created a commission where the five families, he was the one that ran the commission, right, of the five families. Okay, when you think about what meetings in the world happens where all the powerful people show up, you got the G20, you got the UN, you Davos. got the World Economy, you got Davos, you got all these guys that come together, you got NATO, you got... So NATO could be like, well, NATO's uh, original when the 12 or 14 countries were part of NATO, what was it really all about? To fight USSR. There is no USSR. Why are we still funding it? What's the outcome now? Are we still fighting communism? So what a lot of people might say is that those organizations are so obvious that they can't be the ones where the real shit's happening, right? That's just the smokescreen. The real shit is the shit that's behind it and the shit that's behind that and so on and so forth. In your opinion, do you think that NATO, WEF, WHO, that's those people. There's no further up set of strings that are playing the ventriloquized game behind those ones. Do you think that that's where a lot of power actually lies? Um, I don't know. Hmm. What I will say listening to you is with the questions you're asking, I think there's a reason why the audience wants to hear what you think about what's going on right now, because you're asking some heavy questions hmm. right now, mm -hmm. which means you're curious. And if I'm the audience, I would like to know what you can come up with if you took a deeper dive and really wanted to get into these types of, mm -hmm. you know, informations. But, you know, think about what things people are most addicted to, okay? Addicted personalities, video games, porn, sex, cocaine, ecstasy, weed, steroids, partying, all of that stuff. But what's one of the most addicting things? that many of those guys can't get. Power, are you kidding me? Power is like, power porn? The porn of having a lot of power and getting the look in people that look at you that are afraid of you? Some people love that. Some people love that. You know the quote, like if you really wanna test someone's character, give them power. I mean, mm -hmm. some people really love having power. Take a company and see some of the guys that they hired. They hired the wrong person at the top. The guy was all driven by power. What happens? Take a president that becomes a president. 
and he realizes he can use the justice system against his opponent, what happens? Mm. They got that power. It's a lot of power to give to somebody, right? Um, yeah, so you know, those people I believe are out there. Some of them are 100% money people because money talks and you can have Ultimately, a lot of influence. You need funds them. to do yeah, anything, you do. right? You do. It's, it's gonna be the money people, um, but there's also the other power players behind closed doors that, you know, in the, in the movie Moneyball, uh, Jonah Hill plays, the, I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly, he plays the role of the guy that Brad Pitt is sitting there saying, why is this GM of Cleveland Indians keeps looking at that guy? <laughs> Doesn't get on base. Who the hell are you? Right? In, in John, John Maxwell or, or, or Dale Carnegie wrote about this in a book saying the law of E.F. Hutton. E.F. Hutton was in the room that every time the guy was making a decision, he wouldn't make a decision until he asked about E.F. Hutton. So, so here's what we're going to do. So, so a proposal? Okay, great. Hey, E.F. Hutton, what do you think about it? Okay, we're not going to be doing it. Great. The world is filled with E. Like Henry Kissinger. I don't know how much you know about Henry Kissinger. That guy's an E.F. Hutton, if there ever was one. There's a lot of those guys that are the brains behind the faces that we see. And most of the times, the best E.F. Huttons, no one ever finds out who they were. No one ever finds out who those guys are. One of the other tensions that I felt when learning about you and also when watching your content, you've spoken about this specifically to do with Kobe, but I think it also probably plays a role in almost everybody's life, is this tension between self-love and high standards, right? It's the desire to maximize everything you can and to not leave more on the table than you need to, and also the ability to enjoy the moment and to be able to actually take some, some pleasure in that. And there was a, something that came up from a friend that I wrote about this week, so I wanted to explain this to you. He did a psilocybin journey in uh, Australia, and a question came to him, and the question was, do people love you for who you are or for what you do? This is uncomfortable to consider. People loving us for who we are feels more real, genuine, caring, empathetic, and robust. It feels like we're less fickle and more difficult to lose. On the other hand, people loving us for what we do feels transactional and transient. The love that we receive becomes contingent on what achievements and successes we can offer in return. And the obvious fear is that if a point came where we no longer had anything to offer in return, would our love be taken away? So here's an even more uncomfortable question. Do you love you for who you are or for what you do? This highlights our hypocrisy. You see, we want the world to love us for who we are, a balanced, caring view of our true value, independent of our accomplishments. Meanwhile, our own self-love is largely determined by what we do. If we fall short, even though we know we tried our best, we still castigate ourselves for being insufficient, unworthy creatures. So we want the world to show up for us in a way that we are often not prepared to show up for ourselves. You demand more than this. Demand it of yourself. Powerful. Do you see that resonating, this tension in high performers, desire for more, requirement for self-love? Yes. But for me, there's a part of it that's also honest. Because again, the relationship with, between a man and a prostitute, what is that relationship? Each side is getting something in return. The prostitute is getting what? Money. What's the man getting? Pleasure, okay? And they walk away, it's done. It's a very honest relationship, right? There's no depth in that relationship. It's straight up, it's honest, done, we move on, okay? Um, working at a company, say you work with a company 
And he helps the YouTube channel go to the next level, doing all the work behind closed doors, all this stuff. Would he do that job for free? Or would he do it because you're offering something back to them? How many of my employees would be with me if it was working for free? That nonprofit would be kind of weird. Guys, what we're doing is very important, but I need you to work for free. What do you mean? Are you going to make money? I am, but I want you to work for free. It's kind of weird, right? There needs to be an exchange. Again, it's honest. Exchange. Okay. Um, if I go above and beyond everybody else and I work, should I deserve the right to get paid more? Yes. Okay. Is it beneficial for me to work with somebody like you? Of course. Why? Because you're driven. So should I hang on to your coattail because if I go with you, big things are going to happen in my life? Absolutely. Is that a selfish decision? Yes, but it's also a wise decision. Do you know that? You know that. Do they know that? They know that. Do they also know that you have options because now you're at a point that a lot of people would love to be working for you? Of course they know that. They're not dummies, right? They know that. Okay. But you still choose to stay with them and they still choose, choose to stay with you. Is there benefit of somebody hiring your person that's helping with your podcast and paying twice as you pay to go with them? There is. If he chooses to take that just for the money, that's his loss. If you're doing your part, he was never in it for believing in you. It was only about the money part. So the, these are all, and, and the reason why this is so interesting, what, what you're reading about self-love and all these other things is... When you look at some of the people that make it at the highest of the highest of the highest level, they typically have been backstabbed so much hmm. that in the back of their mind, sometimes they're just waiting to see who's going to backstab them next. So, so the desire to have a straight up relationship is no longer the same. Okay. There's a difference between you dating somebody who falls in love with you and, and you're making 22 bucks an hour working at Bally's and she loves you and she stays with you. There's a difference between you getting married when you're making $300,000 a year. And then there's a difference between you making marrying somebody when you're worth half a billion dollars. How do you know the girl that marries you at the end is worth, you know, is with you because she loves you versus she loves what you offer them, right? And is that a sin? Yeah. Is she making a mistake? You know, it, it, I think in an ideal world, I am very comfortable knowing that other people are also there in your life to get what they can out of you. I'm very comfortable with that. Because there's a chapter in the book here where I talk about choosing running mates. And I put a clear criteria on how to choose a running mate. You know, what they bring to the table, their level of trust with you, all these ways of scoring people in your life to see, hey, is this a person? Because the whole concept with choosing your enemies wisely, you also need to choose your allies wisely. So somebody like you, you need true believers in your life. You can't have 50 true believers. That's just naive to think that. You can't have 10 true believers. Can you have two to five true believers? Yes. How, how valuable is that? A lot. So, no, I, uh, you know, the more and more I moved up, the more I realized almost everybody, like, and I'm talking 99% of people, listen to sh uh, the radio show, WIIFM, what's in it for me? Mm -hmm. And a, a part in this book that we dissected your question, which is a fascinating question, is in, in the company, I've been running a sales organization for 20-something years. And when I started the insurance company in 09, we grew it from 66 agents. Today, we have 50,000 agents. We've licensed nationwide. We have a few hundred offices nationwide. But my idea of looking at who's got the biggest upside to contribute to the company has also changed. It used to be, man, that guy's so selfish. All that guy cares about money. 
mean, this guy's the nicest guy in the world. And then I realize the nicest guy in the world who had no selfish desires was happy making $5,000 a month. And so then I created a scoring system. What percentage of you is selfish Mm -hmm. and selfless? And what's the good balance? If you're 100% only you and everybody else zero, well, guess what? You're still a bigger net positive to society than the person at the bottom that's what? 0% selfish and 100% selfless. If a person is 100% selfless, they probably don't eat well. They're probably out of shape. They're probably not healthy. They're probably going to have to go to the hospital. It's going to cost you money on taxes. They probably smell because they don't take a shower. They spend their money on everybody else. So then you'll see the profile. Good people to give you counsel are around the 50-50 range. You can always trust them to give you counsel. Drivers of a company or somebody like you doing what they do, 70-30 is a good split. Okay? 80-20 is a little bit problematic because 80-20 sometimes will compromise to beat everybody. So you want the 65-70. So, so you're asking a technical question. And I've just come to a conclusion that, you know, both parties, if they want to selfishly be pleased, if we can please each other and one of us takes the lead and we're getting mutual love and benefits out of the relationship, you're in a good situation. Every once in a while, you'll find somebody that's going to be a writer that they're going to say, Chris, dude, no matter what you do, I'm with you till the day you die. And you think they're telling the truth. A year goes by, they're still there, even more. Five years go by, they got married. Like, well, when, he gets, when he gets married and asks, it's going to change. Still there. 10 years later, still there. And you're like, this guy's really a true believer. Wow. But it's not going to be that many people. That's a very short list of people. Patrick, Pat David, ladies and gentlemen. Patrick, I appreciate the hell out of you. I appreciate how much you pay attention. Very detail-oriented, and I love that. I really, really do. Uh, thank you for today, man. It's been a long time coming. So where should people go? They want to keep up to date with everything you're doing. Oh, I mean, you, you can go to Amazon and search Choose Your Enemies Wisely, uh, or you can find our podcast, PBD Podcast or Valuetainment. We're all over the place. You'll find us. Thank you, man. But this has been a blast, man, talking to you. I've been watching you for a long time, and it's very obvious why you're climbing the way you are. I appreciate you. Anytime. Thank you.